You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com This time I'm walking to New Orleans I'm walking to New Orleans It used to be said of so-called respectable women that they should appear in the news at birth, upon marriage, and upon their deaths, and less privileged women appeared equally rarely. Well, no longer. Women are not just appearing in the news. They're telling their own stories in all kinds of ways, in blogs, movies, Supreme Court briefs, and memoirs. In honor of Women's History Month, we're making a special effort to hear from women telling their own stories, like Sybil Heidel Morial. She's probably not as well known as her son, Mark, a former mayor of New Orleans and now head of the National Urban League, or her late husband, Dutch, who served as New Orleans' first African-American mayor. Yet hers is the story of women throughout the centuries who've played critical roles, but often behind the scenes. Sybil Morial's new memoir is called Witness to Change, From Jim Crow to Political Empowerment. Sybil Morial joined us from member station WWNO in New Orleans, and I asked her about her childhood, which she talked about as a magical time and place, a cocoon that shielded her from many of the degradations of Jim Crow. My family was middle class, and they provided a good life in this cocoon uh, where we, you know, where we were exposed to many things through the two African-American universities. We couldn't go to the public places, the symphony, the opera, the theater. So we went to what was provided by these uh, two black schools. It was a happy time. Uh, In my book, uh, Andrew Young, once UN ambassador, does the foreword, and he talks about this blessed life. But when we stepped out of our homes, here we were 
blocked from everything, you know, uh, subject to humiliation, uh, couldn't go to public places. So it was sort of a double life. Well, you talked about that, your childhood friend and a young, an incident in the park one day. Will you talk about that? Yes, we were bicycling uh, in the neighborhood, and City Park was not very far from my house. And we went to the entrance of the park, and it looked so beautiful, the uh, architecture of the museum at the end of this long walk, the lagoons on the side, the trees and shrubbery. And we dared to go in. We rode our bikes in uh, and were talking under the trees and uh, where it was cool and pretty soon a policeman came up and shook his nightstick at us and said, you little ends, get out of here. You know you don't belong here. And he was, you know, very aggressive. So we turned our bicycles around and left the park. And after we got outside, we stopped to catch our breath and talked. Said, look, we can't let our parents know this because they know we are not supposed to go in the park. We were not allowed there. And they didn't know that story until years later. And by then... The rules were changing, and Jim Crow was on the run. Mm. Talk to me about your husband, if you would, your late husband, Dutch. I met him uh, one summer at a great books club. We established our own book club because we couldn't belong to the one at the public library. We couldn't even go in the public library. We had our own black library, and he was there. And it was two months after the Brown decision, and so we talked about that, Every night, he was a young attorney practicing with the dean of black attorneys who was involved with uh, Thurgood Marshall in changing the state laws. Uh, but he was involved, and you know, pretty soon, uh, he, he looked at the demographics of the city, and he realized that you know that we needed representation in the political circles. So, um, but when I met him, and when we married, that was not the plan, because it was, you know, unreachable. Did you ever feel, how can I say, annoyed that um, the women did not get as much recognition as the men for their involvement in the movement? I do want to mention that, you know, you started, for example, a civic league to register African Americans to vote in the 60s and the 70s because African Americans weren't allowed to join the League of Women Voters. And there are all these ways in which, you know, women were really involved in all the major movements, but until very recently, their roles were really not acknowledged. And I I just wondered, did that ever bother you? Mm -hmm. Well, it bothered me enough to make me try to change it. You know, when I organized the Louisiana League of Good Government, uh, we were young, we had children, we had careers, um, but we, we wanted to do this. And there were, there were a couple of incidents in my life that made me want to to just take my place in this movement as a woman. And I remember um, an incident. Martin Luther King was an ordained minister. We were at Boston University together. He was in graduate school. I was in undergraduate school. But he often did sermons at churches when a minister had to be out of town. And we in the dormitory always went because he was such a spellbinding uh, preacher. But I remember one of his sermons... He talked about women. Woman is a great institution, he said. And he talked about all of our assets, our resourcefulness, our courage, our love, all of that. And that sort of got me thinking, not 
full, but in the back of my mind, yes, we are. Yes, we are. I wasn't a flag-waving feminist, but I was a really deeply uh, concerned and involved feminist. That's Sybil Heidel Morial. Her new memoir is Witness to Change, From Jim Crow to Political Empowerment. Mrs. Morial, thanks so much for speaking with us. It's been my pleasure to talk to you, Michelle. I never had no teachings about being fair. Depression is part of my mind. The sun never shines on the other side of town. There's always for more There's nothing good in store On the other side of town There's so many unanswered questions on what, what was really affecting the young people and the young mother we've lost because they took the answers with them. We can only, we can only base it on our own thoughts of what must have been hurting them. That is Shirley Robinson, the acting chief of the Pimichikamak Cree Nation, also known as Cross Lake in northern Manitoba. Her community is in the midst of a suicide crisis, and it is not alone. In Pimichikamak, six people have died by suicide in the last three months. That from a population of fewer than 6,000. Currently, 170 students are on suicide watch at Pimichikamax High School. Canada-wide, in some First Nations communities, young men are 10 times more likely to die by suicide and young women 20 times more likely than their non-First Nations counterparts. In some First Nations, the suicide rate for children under 15 is more than 50 times the national average. The crisis has renewed calls for a national strategy to save lives. Assembly of First Nations Grand Chief Perry Bellegarde says the federal government should use its upcoming budget to bring in a plan. It's epidemic. Once people start seeing that, people are going to say that this is crazy. This is this is ludicrous. This is this has to be dealt with. This is health. This is like life and death situations. This is a crisis. If that was happening in any other major city, there'd be huge interventions, huge amount of both physical and mental and human resources put to deal with this issue. And again, it's, it's a travesty that it's taken this crisis to elevate this awareness to the highest levels. But we've got to deal with it sooner than later and provide that hope that's needed and uh, start creating a, a better future for these young men and women. They should not have to turn to suicide as an option. Well, one person who's trying to deal with this now is Sheila North Wilson, who is the Grand Chief of the Manitoba Kiwetanawi Okamakanuk, uh, which represents 30 Manitoba First Nations. Sheila North Wilson is in Winnipeg. Hello. Good morning, Anna Maria. Um, you've been in meetings in the community. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it was a pretty intense and frank discussion yesterday in Pimichikamak. There was about 50 people around the table and more in the peripheral, I guess. Um, and half of them were the leadership of, of the community, including the crisis team that's been dealing with these, this rash of suicides and volunteer elders who have been in the schools talking with youth and consoling and comforting them uh, on their own time. So they were there 
you know, talking about their frustrations and, and some of the realities that they're facing. And, and on the other side of basically the table was um, officials and, and technicians and bureaucrats from both federal and provincial governments, as well as uh, agencies that were there to offer, uh, I guess, a listening ear, but also uh, offering uh, what they may be able to do with the programs that, uh, that they administer. So um, there was some frank discussions. Um, there were some tears uh, by the leadership, and, and even some of the bureaucrats were sometimes in tears talking about the situation. So it was, it was pretty intense, and I think... Um, very much needed discussion. Mm-hmm. And um, so you had some government people there. What kind of support is the community asking for? They have specific questions that they had a list that they were working from. Um, the main ones that I noted was um, each school needs a mental health therapist professional. Um, and I think they they asked for at least six. And over $1 million, oh, actually $1.7 million for post-secondary education. And that of course, speaks to the greater need for all of uh, Canada on First Nations education. But their particular need, if they were to send all of the post-secondary applicants, would be at the tune of $1.7 million. And they asked for program enhancements throughout, uh, recreational facilities for the youth, a hospital, personal care home, increased uh, programming at their uh, Whiskey Jack treatment centre. And of course, all of that speaks to the greater need by all of our First Nations in the MKO territory, and, and I would venture to say all of um, most of the First Nations in Canada. Um, so, mm-hmm. Sheila, help us understand a little more. Um, we just heard that more than 100 high school students, close to 170, are on a suicide watch list. What, what can you tell us about that? What is going on? Well, yeah, the the, very, the community is very um, much still in shock and um, still feeling traumatized by all of this. And in fact, while we were all sitting there all day yesterday, um, there were three attempts of suicide in the community, which, um, you know, every time there there was a a plane or or, um, at one point the RCMP officer that was there had to leave. And um, then people realized later that that's what he was leaving for is is to tend to a potential uh, suicide attempt. And so the community is very much tense and very um, emotional, I would say, and um, definitely, you know, long overdue for uh, answers in their community on, on the despair that they're seeing. Not only that, the, in St. Teresa Point, which is another community in our in our territory of the 30, um, they had to bury an 18-year-old because of suicide, and, and there has been attempts in other communities. And, and yesterday and today I'm hearing that there are um, a couple of murders a homicide, potential homicides in uh, two of our other communities. And this speaks to the overall despair that our communities are are facing, but also mixed that with, you know, um, sometimes addictions and mental health uh, issues in our community that haven't been addressed. So, so when what, what are the young people telling you? The young people are saying that they need recreational facilities where they can explore their talents that Many of them have. There is a, a beautiful hockey rink there that's really uh, utilized uh, to the fullest. It's always it's always being used. Um, and then they have um, a skate park in the summertime that some you know some kids are interested in doing. And they have playgrounds for little kids. But they're saying that they need a recreational facility where they can go 
and, you know, do um, programming around arts and um, exploring some of the talents that they have and, and a place to meet and congregate. And, so the, and because so they've got nowhere to go, nothing to do, and like the interests they have, they've got nowhere to explore them. Yeah, other than the school, and and that has limitations on that. But yeah, and then um, and so why yeah. what what that leads to feelings of what? Well, mix all of this, of course, and when you mix it all in with you know the typical teenage, um, uh, I guess, issues that we all go through in terms of like exploring our, who we are and, and our self esteem issues, and then mix that with you know lack of opportunities and lack of resources to start to uh, really, you know, get your footing on the ground on what you want to do with your future, it becomes very difficult when you mix that all together. And I think um, this also has to do with uh, lack of opportunity for our young people to explore um, their cultural pride and, and, and restoring some of that. And a lot of that has to do with what happened with, you know, the parental a system that that was interrupted by the whole residential school system and and on down the line and how there was a disconnect between our young people and our elders for many years in a lot of places and we're seeing some of that we need to um find a way for youth to have an outlet to be able to explore who they are and find out what their culture is all about but also make their connections with the elders in the community because Elders have so much to offer. When I was in York Landing last week, another First Nation, um, there was about about 30 uh, elders there, and they were talking about the time that they were relocated from their traditional territory to another place that that couldn't sustain their livelihood. And, and, and they had a really, really difficult time. They literally were going through starvation, and, and, um, but they survived. So our young people need to know how resilient and how strong our people are, um, despite all the all the challenges that we have. And I think, you know, that that was one of the things that they were asking for is is finding a way to connect with their culture and their heritage. Mm, okay. Well, Sheila North Wilson, thanks for speaking with me and giving us a little more insight into um, how you're trying to go forward on this. Thank you very much, Anna Maria. And just let me add one last thing. Um, a lot of this has to do with, you know, the you know, the treaty relationship that we were supposed to be basing this country on hasn't been um, lived up to. And if the Trudeau government and the ministers are truly after a nation-to-nation government in relationship with the most important people, uh, the relationship that they keep talking about, I think we're going to have to see real investment and real changes uh, when the budget is handed down next week. Okay, well, we'll bring this up with our next guests. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, that is Sheila North Wilson. She's the Grand Chief of the Manitoba Kiwi Tanawi Okamakinuk. Uh, and we reached her in Winnipeg today. Well, sadly, many First Nations communities across Canada can relate to what she's talking about. My next guests all want to see more done to prevent suicide. Jonathan Solomon is Grand Chief of the the Mushkegwak First Nations, which include eight Cree First Nations in the James Bay region. And we've reached him at his home in Keshechewan, Ontario. Cindy Blackstock is the executive director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society. She is in Calgary today. And Dawn Lavelle Harvard is the president of the Native Women's Association of Canada. She's in New York City. Hello, everyone. 
Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Grand Chief Jonathan Solomon, let's start with you. As you listen to what's happening in Cross Lake, how closely does that hit home for you? Uh, It just brings back uh, uh, memories of uh, what we went through in our region when um, when suicides were taking our our communities and by uh, by hostage it seems uh, a few years ago and and to this day we still continue to have that issue um you know with suicides in our area uh, just last uh, this past weekend we laid the community of Fort Albany laid a, a young woman to rest uh, because of suicide Don Lavelle Harvard talk to us a little bit about how prevalent suicide is among indigenous youth across Canada well, this is a great concern, not only in our First Nations, but for Indigenous youth, as you said, across Canada, that in some territories, the suicide rates are eight times as high as the non-Aboriginal population. And unfortunately, that's something that can only be expected when you have communities, when we have First Nations living in third world conditions, communities where they don't have basic human rights of clean water and, you know, the right to a life without violence, that this kind of despair that leads to suicide is an outcome that, that should be expected when people have no hope in those kind of circumstances. You know, we need to see substantive change immediately if we hope to stem the tide. Cindy Blackstock, you've spent a lot of time looking at the disparity. Um, um, Why is this happening? Well, what your listeners may not know is that First Nations Children's Services are underfunded across every area of their experience. And the reason for that is that provincial and territorial laws apply on reserve, but the federal government funds it. And going back to Confederation, they underfund those services by about 30%. And what that means, Anna Maria, is that First Nations children are really discriminated against by the federal government. And as one non-Aboriginal girl told me, she said, discrimination is when the government doesn't think you're worth the money. And the real tragedy for me is when I see these kids who are going to crummy schools and not getting the quality of culturally-based education they deserve, and then not getting the family services, and then not getting clean water to drink, they start to feel like they're not worth the money. And that's where we see this symptom of these tragic suicides emerging from is that when you're racially discriminated against and you're underfunded across all areas of experience, you start to feel like you're not worth the money and you don't have the resources to be able to uh, parcel that out and deal with it. So, Cindy, are you saying to me that you can make a direct link to federal funding and suicides, that, that, that that's how they actually articulate it? Um, well, there's, or is there I, something else here? I would say that what we have is when you create conditions where children are receiving less services and therefore have less hope and less um, control over their life experience, that that leads to a situation where suicides are more likely. So how's the college responding to this incident? We're having a, um, a race forum. And what's that? A forum on race, so we can discuss the incident and the surrounding issues of race. So the usual lip service? Uh, No comment. 
San Jose students say enough is enough. They're calling for an end to racism on campus following the sentence of three former students who put a bike lock around their black roommate's neck. ABC 7 News reporter Janet O, live at San Jose State with the details. Janet? Ama, the Black Student Union Group organized today's rally. They say it's not only about DJ Williams, but about paving the way for the future generation of minority students and sparing them from going through what some of the students here today said they had to go through. Students here at this rally say the verdict in DJ Williams' case sends the wrong message and it's a big step back for civil rights. So why are we here if it was just a prank? Obviously it was not a prank. It was disrespectful and deliberate. Students say what's even more disappointing is a lack of leadership at San Jose State surrounding this incident. And for the administration to not even mention it, they just fabricated it. They just sugarcoated it and saying we are deeply saddened for the verdict and blah, all this and blah, like that. On Monday, Williams' family members left the courthouse disappointed after the judge sentenced two of the three defendants to a mere 30 days in jail. The jury had declared it wasn't a hate crime when three white roommates put a bike lock around Williams' neck in the dorm room they shared. Williams told school officials he had been harassed and called the N-word. San Jose State has since expelled the three white students, and today they said they're trying to take the right steps to make sure all students feel safe. We've made some strides, and we know that we have some ways to go as well. San Jose State says it has thus far implemented, among many things, diversity orientation for incoming students, training for staff, and now they're working on opening a Chicano, Latino, and African American Resource Center. The university is also hoping the biggest change will come when they hire someone to be the school's first ever chief diversity officer. I hope they will bring a breadth of leadership in terms of how do we assess our campus climate, how do we work with faculty, issues that are occurring inside the classroom, what's the student experience in the residence halls and campus life. The four finalists will be on campus tomorrow to meet and talk with students and staff. In San Jose, Janet O, ABC 7 News. Now one, there are a sizable number of white people who are tired of this whole business about squabbling about what color somebody is. Mostly a number of younger, excuse me, younger white people. Shock and outrage. I was really, really disgusted by it. I was not happy. I just think that the people who go to this school are getting a good education and that this isn't a result of stupidity, it's a result of racism. After these pictures featuring students from Gross Point South High School are plastered all over social media, three of the students boldly display the N-word across their stomach. Nigga! A fourth student had I Love Weed painted on their knee. Terribly embarrassing that our school would have kids that, go, that act like that. The superintendent says it all went down at a party off campus over the weekend. This isn't going to be condoned or tolerated in the Grosse Point public school system. Once the pictures hit social media, the students in the photos were reported to school officials, and then the school district had to deal with another issue. The threats are basically the whole idea around snitches. And, you know, why did you tell on these four? School officials say all four students in the pictures and two students engaging in threatening behavior have been suspended for five days. I think that they should be suspended, but I also think that there should be more discussion about it and discussion about racial awareness. As school officials continue to look into this incident, they now say police are also investigating. We'll call the Gross Point Farms uh, Police Department 
and began an investigation. School officials sent a letter home to parents about the incident, and they hope that this type of behavior from students will not continue. They also hope students learn a lesson about social media. Once you post some, it really doesn't ever really come down. And Gross Point Farms, Ingrid Kelly, Fox 2 News. Uh, I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. Doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends and I see them interact, uh, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. Damn you, Obama. Bruised and shaken up, an elementary school student claims a substitute teacher grabbed and choked him on campus. And that student and his mother are now sharing their side of the story tonight. Good evening, I'm Ty Steele. And I'm Stephanie Cruz. The teacher says the student was using derogatory names toward him, but the student's mother says that is no excuse. Fox 40's Rena Nakano joins us now live from the newsroom with more on the case. Rena. Well, after almost a month after the incident, we spoke to the alleged victim's family today. They're asking why it's taking the district so long to begin their investigation. Now they're hoping the teacher never steps foot in a classroom again. This 11-year-old is quite an athlete. Up for challenges, not afraid of anything. But last month, he says he was shaken up. I was surprised. And scared. On February 23rd, Andreas Cuellar says he was grabbed and choked by a teacher at Michael J. Castori Elementary in Sacramento. He has eczema, so I put his medicine on, and in the morning he had no bruise, nothing there. But when he came back home, she says her son's arm was covered in bruises. I asked him, can you please let it go? He said no and had, like, grabbed it more tighter and then started to wiggle my arm around like it was a toy. Andreas says the incident began when he chased after a ball during recess, at which point a substitute teacher picked it up. When the teacher didn't give it back to him, Andreas says he got mad. As punishment, he claims the teacher grabbed his arm and took him to the principal's office. My son said that's when the teacher grabbed him by the throat and pushed him against the wall. He says the sub pressed on a small bruise he already had, making his injury worse. Andreas remembers yelling and screaming because of the pain. But what came after that surprised him even more. Like Andreas says he called the police immediately following the alleged chokehold. When I called the police. Then he had his mother file a police report. In a statement to the police, the substitute teacher claims it was Andreas who was cursing at him, calling him derogatory names, including the N-word. I mean, it says they used some bad words here. I did. He doesn't deny that. Andreas says he regrets it, learning his lesson. When I get mad, try just try just walk away. In the report, the teacher says he did grab Andreas's arm because Andreas was acting up and hitting him, but says at no time did his arms or hands go around Andreas's neck. The Twin Rivers Unified School District sent us this statement that reads, All reported allegations are deemed serious, promptly and thoroughly investigated, and addressed in accordance with all policies and laws to ensure the safety of students, staff, and community. They're not angels, and they're going to use inappropriate words when their parents aren't around. But that still doesn't give someone the right to put their hands on someone they're supposed to be protecting. 
Now, Andreas says he hasn't seen the substitute teacher around school since the incident. We asked the district if he had been reprimanded. They said it is being handled by their HR department as a personnel matter. Live in the newsroom tonight, I'm Rena Nakano, Fox 40 News. I need to talk to somebody, Pastor. During these marches, King and other demonstrators were struck by bricks and bottles. Oh, I've been hit so many times, I'm immune to it. How do you feel about this, Well, this is a terrible thing. I've been in many demonstrations all across the South, but I can say that I have never seen, even in Mississippi and Alabama, mobs as hostile and as hate-filled as I've seen in Chicago. Important developments tonight in a new Chicago Police Department controversy. It concerns racist comments made on a police radio. Who made them? Tonight, new information. NBC5's Natalie Martinez is live at City Hall with much more. Natalie? Allison, it appears that the transmissions came from Morgan Park in the far south side, but the big question is who's speaking on them? OEMC says it's an unauthorized user, but at least one activist says he thinks that's a lie. The offensive comments were discovered over the weekend, seemingly broadcast on Chicago police radio frequency. Find out what radio that uh, comment came from. You know, we don't get radio numbers, but I'm already hollering for my supervisor. Community leaders and seniors from King College Prep gathered outside City Hall today to call on the mayor to find out and fire whoever's responsible. So to hear that over radios across the city that people are disrespecting us in such a manner is unbelievable. They appear to be racist comments involving CPD, but OEMC says it's reviewed the audio, doesn't believe they were made on a city programmed radio because they lack characteristics of an official police radio. Chicago police told NBC5 in a statement that it was made aware of inappropriate transmission and that they're absolutely unacceptable. The superintendent ordering an immediate internal affairs investigation, adding, should the investigation reveal that a member of the police department made the statements, he will be immediately suspended and disciplinary proceedings will be launched. Tonight, this group is also worried about the bigger, uglier picture. What that transmission represents is the systemic racism that's going on and that's present in the Chicago Police Department. The mayor's office told us in part that Rahm Emanuel is eager for the results of that investigation and for the individual to be held accountable. We're live outside City Hall. Natalie Martinez, NBC5 News. Rob. This the city of Chicago. We've been focusing on the presidential primaries, but there were down-ballot elections as well. On Tuesday, voters in Chicago ousted Anita Alvarez, the prosecutor who's been under fire for taking more than a year to charge a white police officer in the shooting death of Laquan McDonald, a black teenager. And voters in Cleveland, Ohio, rejected Tim McGinty, the prosecutor who declined to indict officers in the shooting death of 12-year-old Tamir Rice, who was holding a toy gun. Justin Hansford, a law professor at St. Louis University, says he He's in touch with the voting activists in Cleveland and Chicago through Facebook, but he actually was an advisor to Black Lives Matter activists in Ferguson. So we thought we'd bring him in, Justin, uh, Justin Professor Hansford, to Cleveland and Chicago, uh, getting rid of prosecutors through the ballot box. Was that a political action? Oh, yes. Yeah. So first of all, glad to be here. And, you know, there's a, a long history of activists holding prosecutors accountable uh, for some of 
these uh, harms done to the community. It goes back to when Fred Hampton was assassinated in 1969. Activists organized to oust the DA um, Hanahan in that case. And where was that? Um, that was in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's part of a long legacy in, in both Chicago and in Cleveland. Um, there were activists who were canvassing. They were um, out there doing phone banking. They were doing protests. Um, they were working on these campaigns for a good amount of time in each case for, for both uh, Alvarez and for McGinty. And so it was definitely part of a strategic organizing process, which uh, which I was really uh, happy to see was one that involved a lot of coalition building and collaboration between BYP 100 and um, Ohio Students Association in Cleveland. BYP 100, that's Black Youth Project. Right, Black Youth Project 100 and, in Chicago and in Cleveland, Ohio Students Association is uh, another group that has been at the forefront of a lot of the Black Lives Matters organizing in both of those cities. Well, we should say that uh, protests at the ballot box come in many forms. There have been moves across the country from the right to oust judges, elected judges, and so we know that. But this involves not just the prosecutor but others. And you know police are concerned about these election results. NPR's Martin Casti spoke with Jay McDonald, president of Ohio's Fraternal Order of Police, One of the um, prosecutors was ousted in Cleveland. He had this to say. We have a very real concern about, you know, a trend across the country of being pressured to pervert the rule of law to uh, to satisfy um, activists. Justin, your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, the whole point of electing prosecutors is to make prosecutors accountable to local communities. And this sends a message that accountability is for everyone, including prosecutors. Well, there have been accusations that prosecutors are too cozy with the police that they work hand-in-hand with in prosecuting crime. Uh, In Missouri, remember the St. Louis County prosecuting attorney, Robert McCullough, who sat the grand jury that decided not to indict Officer Darren Wilson in the killing, the shooting death of Michael Brown in Ferguson. Um, He he was both criticized for being too cozy with police. Uh, He was accused of setting up the grand jury, dumping too much data. But some of his colleagues said he did the best that he could do, and he was handily reelected. Yeah, now, that was a case, of course, that's very close to my heart. I always tell people, I'm I'm a lawyer and I'm a law professor, and I see this as my calling. And And it hurts so much to see the very thing that I've dedicated my life to perverted and used to criminalize a community through the war on drugs and now to allow these uh, terrorist acts of the killing of unarmed civilians to be shielded from accountability. And when you talk about uh, Bob McCullough in that case, he was reelected through, uh, you know, if you look back at those facts, he had a, a a process where he drew out the investigation past the time of his election. So his decision not to indict came after the re-election had already taken place. And I'm sure that if, if he had made that decision in a month or even two months earlier time, of a time period, then we would have had the same sort of move to ouster him as well. So yeah. that's, the, I, that's the process of manipulation of this um, prosecutorial function that that causes people to lose confidence in the system. And it really broke my heart to see uh, Prosecutor McCullough take that 
take that approach. But what about the way forward? Mike O'Malley yeah. is the candidate who ousted Prosecutor Tim McGinty in Ohio. He says he wants to bring back community-based prosecution. Chicago activist Mariam Cabo, we spoke with her. Uh, right. She says they have that in Chicago. She described it as assistant district attorneys who have the offices in the local communities. And then, you know, they're closer to the community. They might be able to arrange a lesser sentence, for instance, if suspects meet certain conditions. But it doesn't immediately go into a pipeline that's already packed with uh, prosecutors and um, people collecting fines in courts and seems to be a pipeline directly to prison. Yeah, you know, 95% of elected prosecutors around the country are white. 83% are men. Only 1% are women of color. So the, there's the question of who we put in these positions in the first place. And it's not enough to just say that we're going to involve more people in the process of over-criminalization. We have to engage in a decriminalization process. And um, with prosecutors, prosecutors hold most of the power in our criminal justice system. They by themselves decide whether there's diversion, what they decide whether or not there's going to be a plea deal. They decide whether or not uh, they're going to bring a charge uh, that's going to be a charge with a, a high uh, mandatory minimum or a high amount of time that will be served. So prosecutors have arguably more power than judges in our system today. And so these prosecutors are uh, supposed to be helping to make to keep us safe and to make the community feel safe. And if the community is being terrorized, not just by criminals, but by criminals with badges, it's the prosecutor's duty to make sure that those people are held accountable too. Justin Hansford, a law professor at St. Louis University. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Anything from candy to cigarettes can get a nigga killed. But I'll be honest, man, I'm running out of shit to feel. I ain't trying to tell my biz, but I got the blues. And I watch the news like, nigga, what the fuck I'm supposed to tell my kids? So fuck your city ordinance. This is for the flourishing. So hot in her and that's where the West floors. We seem to keep them shooting, bring the chorus in. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. We go behind the headlines, reporters' insight into the stories they cover. Joining me are St. Louis Public Radio reporters Rachel Lipman and Joe Manis and SIU Carbondale journalism professor Bill Freivogel. Thank you all so much for being with us. Thank you. Rachel, I'll begin with you. We'll talk about that consent decree. The uh, Ferguson City Council reversed itself this week and decided to go ahead and accept uh, and endorse that decree. Did they really have any choice? I mean, yes, I guess in the sense of the word that they could have, you know, stuck their ground, that could have been their political choice. But realistically speaking, probably not. Um, you had a group of, of protesters, of activists, basically, I think, willing to shut down government in a sense, be there, be, you know, voice their, their objection to the rejection of the consent decree consistently and constantly. And I'm just not sure how they, if they saw a path to kind of, you know, move forward and get beyond that to, you know, make other changes to city government. And I think they were also pretty worried about an April election losing a tax vote that they needed to fund the city, not just to comply with the consent decree, but also just basic city operations. So practically speaking, no, I think they, they realized, you know what, we, we need to come to some kind of, of, you know, moment with the Justice Department where they limit the costs a little bit, but implement essentially all of the major changes. As much about money then as reform. Yeah. Um, I don't think that they ever were fighting it to say, 
we don't want to make these reforms. Maybe they were looking for a way to weasel out and not, you know, be bound to, you know, this extensive in-depth uh, decree, but to find some way to make it a little bit less onerous. And uh, included in there were some agreements that I think cap the, or they, they proposed agreements that cap the cost over a certain period of time and get more technical assistance from the Justice Department, which comes in free. One of the councilmen said that Ferguson, with this approval, could become the poster boy for reform. Uh, is that, uh, is that uh, apt, do you think? I mean, I think it's possible that, you know, this will be the model for how these little North County municipalities are going to work. But we've said time and time and time again on this show and on many other discussions is that what Ferguson does isn't necessarily going to matter unless the other communities around it change as well. It does, you know, it does people no real good in a sense if if Delwood and Velda City and um, Florissant and I mean, I can think of dozens of other little North County municipalities up there that engage in the same sort of ticketing practices as Ferguson does, how much does it really change to have Ferguson forced to make these reforms and not anywhere else? And I don't see the Justice Department coming in and going after consent decrees and pattern and practice investigations for all of these little different municipalities. Let's bring uh, Bill Freivold into the discussion. Uh, Bill uh, Bill is a, is a longtime journalist and also an attorney, as regular listeners to this program know. Uh, Bill, this now has to go to a judge. However, right. But I, I would think that most likely a judge will approve anything that the Department of Justice and Ferguson has have agreed to. So I think it's very likely that that that, that a judge will go along on, on Rachel's point about how what about all the other municipalities? I think it's worth noting that the Justice Department sent out a letter earlier this week uh, in which trying to address the 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 broad issues of how municipal uh, courts uh, function, and so I think that's the justice. I think that's a sig- very significant action on their part, and something we're going to see a lot more of and, in the future. And nothing in this consent decree rules out any kind of individual civil suits that residents of Ferguson may want to bring against the city or any other city. Um, you actually just had recently in Jennings, maybe three months ago, uh, they settled a civil suit against the Jennings jail there. It was a fines and fees case and uh, revamped how they handle cash bail mm. and some other things. So it won't come from the Justice Department necessarily, but it'll come through probably legal or court action. Well, everybody knows now that the Justice Department means business <laughs> when it comes to things <laughs> like this, right? Yes, they do. Yeah. Uh, and particularly under this uh, under the Obama administration, there have been a lot of pattern and practice cases and, and consent decrees. One other question with regard to what the judge, who uh, now has to approve this uh, this document, suppose the judge decides some changes should be made. What happens then? Does it go back to the Ferguson City Council to be reconsidered <laughs> once again? I guess uh, it probably would have to. Uh, I guess I don't really expect that. Uh, expect that to happen. Yeah, you do. You rarely see if there's a settlement in there, if it's something that both sides have negotiated, a judge wanting to, to throw this a monkey wrench into it again. It's, it's documented that, you know, we've sat down and, and we've negotiated this. You know, I'm not saying it's rubber stamp, but I think Bill's right. They're not they don't want to upset the apple cart much. Well, I, I did so want to have fun with this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one concern about the consent decrees, there was a piece in, in Vox uh, this week when Ferguson agreed, uh, looking at uh, the history of uh, past consent decrees. And it and it found, it looked at 10 different, uh, it was actually a frontline episode, looking at 10 different cities and found that in, that had been under consent decrees in five of the 10, 
the actual use of force had increased rather than decreasing, mm-hmm. and there were, uh, there were very large costs. You know, go, uh, going back to it goes back to Ferguson's original objection. Since Richard Nixon declared a war on drugs over 45 years ago, the U.S. government has spent around $1 trillion to curb the global drug trade. But the general consensus is that there's not much to show for it. Veteran journalist Dan Baum has looked into the situation, and his article on the subject, Legalize It All, How to Win the War on Drugs, is in the April issue of Harper's Magazine. I'm very pleased it has brought Dan Baum back to our show. Welcome back. Thank you very much. We've been told for years that America has a major drug problem, but what kind of drug problem do we actually have? Well, it depends how you define the drug problem, and that's one of the issues I raise in the magazine is that if we just define the drug problem as people using drugs, that's crazy. People use alcohol, um, and and we live with that. Um, But the actual number of people with debilitating drug problems is tiny in the United States, and um, it's 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 tragic. It's tragic for the people who suffer from drug dependence, and it is tragic for their families. I mean, it is a, it is it is a bad thing. I do not want to be mistaken for um, minimizing that, but it is relatively small. Well, heroin takes the lives of nearly thirty thousand Americans every year. Heroin's and, getting bad again. Yes, and doctors, in fact, are being told to cut back on prescribing opioids like Vicodin and OxyContin. Yes. But, in fact, according to recent CDC data, accidental overdoses have surpassed car accidents as the nation's leading cause of accidental death for people ages 25 to 64. And you, right at the top of the show, got to one of the most effective refutations to my argument in the the article. The article argues that we need to legalize all the drugs that are now illegal and replace them with a regulated marketplace. And we have a regulated marketplace for pharmaceuticals, and we suffer a lot of drug overdoses. So we're not doing that very well. Well, you also made the point that alcohol uh, leads to a lot of deaths, and uh, prohibition didn't work. So are we going through something similar with the drugs, with heroin, cocaine, methamphetamines? Yeah, you know, we're at a we're at a place now where it is considered normal that these drugs are illegal. And so when something is illegal, the solution is to apply law enforcement and the courts and prison. And we've been in this mindset since we were you and I were kids, which is a horrifyingly long time. And uh obviously it hasn't worked. Um to say that if we legalize all drugs and replace them with a regulated marketplace, and that will solve all our problems, that would be dishonest. It would not solve all our problems, but it would, as I argue in the piece, regulation, taxation, um, those better fit our national skill set than repression. Thank goodness. Well, 
prohibition prohibition uh, was a time when uh, the mob did very well because uh, drinking was a criminal activity. Exactly. Uh, are you arguing that if the government controlled the the way these uh, illegal drugs, now illegal drugs, were made available, that we would eliminate most of the criminal activities that are often associated with it? Well, I mean, not just the people who sell it, but also people commit crimes to pay for their habits. Yes, yes. Though, again, we have to be careful to remember that legalizing drugs will not rid our society of crime or even of organized crime. I work in the Americas Division now at Human Rights Watch, and I am not speaking for Human Rights Watch today, and I didn't in the article. I wrote this article before I went to work for Human Rights Watch. So this article, neither the article nor what I'm saying today is the position of Human Rights Watch. But um, it's very clear uh, that even in Latin America, uh, perhaps especially in Latin America, you ta- if you quote-unquote take the money out of drugs, there's still going to be organized crime. Um, this is not a cure-all. This is what I'm talking about in this article is just a better way to manage a problem that we have. Well, one of the ways that uh, we have been managing it is through rehab programs, drug treatment programs. Massively underfunded. Amy uh, Winehouse uh, said she didn't want to go into rehab. How effective have the various treatment programs been? How much do we spend on them? I do not have the number of how much we spend, but it is dwarfed by what we spend on law enforcement and prisons. Um, Clearly, uh, we need to do a better job of treating people who present themselves and want to get off. Portugal did an interesting thing. In 2001, it decriminalized um, all drugs, not just marijuana, all drugs. So personal possession and use of these drugs is not a crime. And it vastly expanded uh, treatment. Um, and the the results have been amazing. Now, I would argue well, this that is criminalizing in, doesn't get the job done, but but the results have been remarkable in Portugal. Uh, well, they, we have 15 years of this, so right. by now it's no longer just an experiment? It's no longer just an experiment. In fact, when the president ran for re-election, one of the things he boasted about was having having done this. Um, it's it's w- considered a wild success in Portugal. Well, can we clarify those terms, legalization and decriminalization? Yes, yes, good idea. Um, not the same thing. Not at all the same thing. And Portugal decriminalized. And that means that, that usually what that means is the personal possession of small quantities and the use of the drugs is not a crime, is not a criminal offense. What I, was, what I started to say earlier is if if you are if you if if you are exhibiting behavior that shows that you you are you have a drug problem you go before a three person panel i think it's a it's a judge and a and a psychologist and a physician and they come up with a treatment plan for you and you can be held to that um uh there are a lot of ways to do this the problem with decriminaliz- with decriminalizing drugs as opposed to legalizing and regulating them is you leave the distribution and the production in the hands of organized crime. And and that's a problem. Well, in England, many years ago, uh, the if you were a heroin addict, you went to a doctor and he would prescribe, or she would prescribe, uh, 
drugs to yes. keep your habit going, you would be thrown in jail for smoking marijuana, but uh, <laughs> heroin was still, I guess, decriminalized. Uh, that yeah. system has been abandoned by the British. Is it How different is it from what the Portuguese are doing? Um, the, the, the Swiss do the same kind of thing. Uh, the Canadians do the same kind of thing. If you are an addict, you can go and get maintenance uh, quantities of, of these drugs. Uh, are I they know. switching to methadone, or are they still giving you the the heroin? I am not. I, I must say, I am not much of an expert on on foreign countries. Uh, I know about Portugal. Um, uh, you know, methadone works. Um, methadone is is terribly underfunded uh, in the United States, anyway. Um, again, if if you'll forgive me, you're kind of nibbling at the edges. You, we need to get our minds around the idea that these substances need to be part of – they need to come out of the shadows. They need to be part of the legal pharmacopoeia. And then we can talk about who gets them, how. But until we legalize them and decide to regulate them instead of prosecute them, we're not going to make any progress. Well, what happened uh, at the end of the 19th century into the 20th century, these drugs – could be purchased legally, and then they became wicked. Yes. It started with anti-opium laws uh, in San Francisco, which were aimed at the Chinese, right? We have often used um, drugs to get at populations we don't like. Uh, in, the, in the 30s and 40s, it was marijuana and Mexicans. In the... Um, in the, I think also in the 30s, I once came across, I, did, I wrote a book about drug policy years ago, and I came across the term from some southern uh, state, um, from, the, from the transcript of a, of a hearing, and I think Georgia, and they used the term coconized Negroes, Nigga! that if we don't ban cocaine, we are going to have a, uh, an army of coconized Negroes on the street raping our women. Uh, and... And this goes all the way up to Richard Nixon. Um, and you spoke to John Ehrlichman I about spoke how to that John Ehrlichman. about how Nixon's uh, drug policy was developed. And Leonard, was that was open. an interview that changed my career. That was an inter that was an interview in 1993 or four that completely changed how I've worked ever since. I found John Ehrlichman, the great Watergate villain. Uh, he was doing minority recruitment in Atlanta. And minority recruitment? Minority recruitment for a little engineering firm. He didn't look anything like he had during Watergate. He was really fat. He had this enormous beard that went down to the middle of his chest. And I went in because he had been Richard Nixon's domestic policy advisor, and I had all these wonky policy questions about how they came up with their drug policy. And I started asking them, and he, he waved them away. He said, can we, I, I can't use the term here on the radio, I'll get you fined, but he said, can we cut the BS? Um, and can we, can I just tell you what this was about? And he said, the Richard, the Richard Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House thereafter had two enemies, black people and the anti-war left. So this is part of the Southern strategy? I guess you could say it is part of the Southern strategy. He said, we knew that if we could associate marijuana with the hippies 
and heroin with the blacks. We could demonize them night after night on the evening news. We could disrupt their meetings. We could arrest their leaders. We could, we could harass them with the police endlessly. He said, did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. And I'm sitting there. I take my notes on a laptop. And I said, I, you know I'm writing this down. And he shrugged. I mean, he'd been in federal prison. He had been disgraced. He had nothing left to protect. Frankly, I got the impression he was glad finally somebody had asked him about it and he could unburden himself. I think he had felt bad about this for years. And that interview changed the book I was writing. It taught and it changed all the work I've done since. It told, told me that people will tell you anything if you ask them right. And if enough time has elapsed, people are eager to get these things off their chests. But it hasn't changed things all that much. Uh, African Americans and minorities in general are disproportionately in our prisons. Of course. On, of related course. to drug charges. Every president since Nixon, Democrat and Republican alike, has found the drug war equally useful for different ways. Uh, the Democrats often use it to shore up their right flank. Um, parents love demonizing drugs, because if your kid is screwed up, if your 16-year-old is alienated and screwed up, it's much easier to blame marijuana than it is to blame your divorce or your overwork or your general lousy parenting. But so, hasn't that changed a bit, considering the fact that so many of the parents smoked marijuana when they were kids? I haven't seen it change very much. And I smoked a lot of marijuana as a kid. And so did the, the people among whom I parent. Um, the, the drug war serves us all. And I think, you know, urban liberals like you and I need to get over the idea that this is some right-wing plot. You don't know my politics. Yeah, I do. Um, uh, that this is some kind of right-wing concoction. The drug war serves us all. And, and it harms us all. And it's time to get over this. You're the one who's guilty lawmakers, the politicians, the Colombian drug lords, all you who lobby against making drugs legal, just like you did with alcohol during the prohibition, you're the one who's guilty. I mean, come on, let's kick the ballistics here. Ain't no Uzis made in Harlem. I mean, not one of us in here owns a poppy field. This thing is bigger than Nino Brown. This is big business. This is the American way. The legal marijuana industry is booming, and businesses are cashing in. Dispensaries alone raked in billions of dollars last year. But one group is being shut out of this industry, and it is African Americans. Amanda Chicago-Lewis covers drug policy for BuzzFeed. She's written about this, and she's with us now. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Kelly. Spell it out for us, um, if you could, just really clearly. What did you find in terms of the numbers on the disparity when it comes to who has entry to this industry and who doesn't? So there are between 3,200 and 3,600 estimated dispensaries nationally. I talked to a lot of people and estimate that there are fewer than three dozen black dispensary owners in the country out of that 32 to 3,600, which is a little bit around 1%. You have spent six months looking into this story. What made you start investigating it in the first place? Well, it was very clear there were these laws in every single state that has legalized medical or recreational marijuana preventing people who had drug felonies from getting involved in the industry. And it seemed pretty blatant that that was 
a racist law. <laughs> well, explain what you mean by that. You mean that people who have been committed for felonies, drug felonies in particular, are disproportionately people of color? Yeah. I mean, we know that the war on drugs was enforced in a racially biased way. Um, we know that that is not reflective of who's using and selling drugs. People of all races use and sell drugs at the exact same rates. I mean, data from the National Institute of Drug Abuse from every single year since they started measuring it shows that black teenagers are actually less likely to use drugs than people of any other race. But in every single county in America, black people have been between two and 10 times more likely to get arrested for uh, selling or using drugs, you know, since the 1970s. So it seemed pretty clear that the people who had drug felonies on their record disproportionately were black people. And also, you know, I spend a lot of time at cannabis conferences, going to dispensaries, talking to people in the industry. And it just seemed very clear that these laws didn't really make sense. Right. But lawmakers would say, right, that somebody who who has committed a felony, a drug felony, isn't necessarily somebody you want to be the face of this business, right? That's true. Um, except for the fact that there are lots of people who grew and sold and used marijuana on the black market who were never arrested. So the idea behind the laws is to prevent diversion and to prevent the legal marijuana industry from becoming a front for um, criminal activity, which, you know, is a real thing. Um, there's like an ongoing Supreme Court case where Nebraska and Oklahoma are actually suing Colorado over all of the uh, legally grown uh, marijuana that's being uh, flowing through their borders. Okay, so you're talking about this idea that, um, you know, drug dealers themselves tend to be people who have the kind of experience that's necessary to do this work. But if you were, you know, somebody involved in drug activity and you're a person of color, you are much less likely to have access to this world. Is that a correct way of, of saying it? Yeah, I mean, I think the idea is that lawmakers would like to keep drug dealers out, except for the fact that they need drug dealers or marijuana growers to help them get the industry going, which is why in a lot of different states, you see things like no one with a drug felony can get involved in the industry. But if you're applying for a marijuana business license, it's a big plus if you have experience with cannabis. So how do you have that experience with cannabis? if you weren't working with it on the black market. I also found people are shell-shocked because of the war on drugs. A lot of black people are very uncomfortable with the idea of getting involved in legal marijuana, both on a consumer side and on a business owner side. I also know several you know, black cannabis entrepreneurs whose family members are very horrified that they would take the kind of risk that they're taking. Amanda Chicago-Lewis, thank you so much. Thank you. Amanda Chicago Lewis covers drug policy for BuzzFeed. Damn, it feels good to be a gangster. And now, a word from the president. Damn, it feels good to be a gangster. PBS wanted to do a story about Donald Trump supporters. Now, uh, they're part of the mainstream media overall. And you think, like, oh, PBS really liberal. No, no, no. 
like everybody else, they have corporate sponsors too, and and they also have money coming in from the government. So they uh, neutral. I got to be neutral, no matter what. I got to be neutral, right? So now, oftentimes with these groups, um, they're not neutral towards Bernie Sanders. Uh, we explained in a different show about how NPR has nonstop pro Hillary Clinton supporters, nonstop. Okay. So if it's a person who might actually change the system for the better, no, we're, we don't have to be neutral to that guy. But if it's a monster on the right, you've got a guy who's running on fascism. It's a guy, hey, I, I got to be neutral. So what are they going to do? They're going to do propaganda basically on his behalf. They're going to humanize him and soften him up. And they're going to show you this lovely American family who's fighting for Donald Trump. They all got together to do it. But normally they're not involved in politics. Now I want you to pay very close attention this family. And then I'm going to show you some pictures, some still frames we got from this to find out who they really are. Let's watch. We talked to one family with differing politics spanning three generations to hear why they're going all in for Trump. This is my first time voting. Um, being 33, that's kind of crazy, but it says a lot. This is my first time I've ever worked on a political campaign. My family members have joined me, my son, my daughter-in-law and my grandchild. Just been such an awesome experience. And Father God, we just thank you that you're going to use Donald Trump for your glory and your kingdom, oh Father God. Amen. My biggest point is if you want to be here, conform to the country. If you don't want to be here, go home. Hello, my name is Grace, and I'm a volunteer for Donald Trump's presidential campaign here in North Carolina. The whole idea of the care, the veterans being subpar, is very true. They're in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and in other parts of the report, they explain like some of them used to be Democrats and some of them were Republicans, but Trump has brought them together. God, so American of them working within the process. That's so shed a tear for how wonderful Donald Trump supporters are. Until I was like, wait a minute. Something about her tattoos, right? Believe me, there's plenty of uh, tatted supporters on the left, right? Uh, but uh, a lot of people caught it. Uh, it's Grace Tilly, uh, that lovely woman who's working the phones, helping part of the political process. Wait a minute, is that a Celtic cross or a Celtic cross on her hand? Okay, now, if you're not familiar with it, let's go to Mark Pitcavage, who's a senior research fellow for the Anti-Defamation League. He's going to explain what that is. Uh, the Celtic cross is an ancient and revered Christian symbol, typically not associated with extremism at all. However, one particular version of the Celtic cross, a squarish cross with a thick circle intersecting with it, also known as Odin's cross, has become one of the most popular white supremacist symbols around. In the past 20 years, its popularity has done little but grow thanks to its use as a logo by Stormfront the largest white supremacist website in the world. Now, <laughs> I'm sure the mainstream media will be like, well, I mean, come on, but maybe she meant the good kind of Celtic cross, not the one on Stormfront, not the one that all the tattoos are about. Well, then you catch the second tattoo on her hand, 88. I wonder if she graduated uh, college in 88. Mm, apparently not. 88 is a white supremacist numerical code for... Heil Hitler. Now, Anti-Defamation League had some examples of white supremacists using these same symbols, uh, white pride, worldwide, uh, 88, but we found many, many others. Stormfront uh, indeed does have that same cross we can show you on their website. And, I mean, you can go through all the pictures. It's all white power, white pride. Uh, the people who use it are 
fascists, neo-Nazis, Squadron 88 uh, celebrates Hitler Youth. And then if it wasn't clear enough, they here's a swastika with white power on it. So this story isn't about Grace Tilly. Who cares about Grace Tilly? It isn't about one particular family that happens to be white supremacists. Uh, I'm claiming that they're Democrats. Okay, maybe they are. I don't know what happens in North Carolina. This story is about PBS. They are desperate to call everything neutral. I, we're not biased against Republicans. Don't cut our funding, Republicans in Congress. Uh, corporations, don't, don't, cut, don't cut the funding. No, 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 no. We're neutral. We're neutral. On the one side, we have you know regular politicians. On the other side, we have Mussolini. I'm not, but I'm, I'm neutral. Maybe Mussolini is awesome. Maybe he's awesome. They have stopped being objective. That is the role of journalists, to be objective and to deliver facts, not to be neutral to the facts. If sports reporters did this, it would be comical. Uh, the San Antonio Spurs and the Los Angeles Lakers played today. Uh, the Spurs say they won, and the Lakers say they won. All right, back to you. Who the hell won? What's the reality? But that's how politics is now covered. Uh, some say that uh, this woman is an all-American patriot working the phones and being part of the political process. Some believe that uh, she puts white supremacist tattoos all over her body because she's so psyched about Heil Hitler. No, no, no. First of all, it, they don't even say both things. They only said the positive thing. They didn't even pick up on the negative thing. Second of all, those things are not neutral. Yes, she's working the phones. Yes, she gets the vote. She's an American. But she is proudly celebrating fascism and, uh, and proudly backing Donald Trump. That's the story. Those are the facts. PBS missed it because they don't want to tell that story. Ooh, that wouldn't be neutral. You know, sometimes, uh, not sometimes, recently, I swear it was not that uh, long ago, that I realized... And I don't know how to put this without seeming like overly uh, self-proud, right? That we do something here. We really, we do something. We show you something that apparently almost no one else is showing you, right? I mean, there's a couple other outlets, bless their hearts, but, but not that many. I mean, all of television news is a wasteland, wasteland. At best neutral, if not doing propaganda on behalf of Donald Trump. And supporting Bernie Sanders. I mean, look at the revolution Bernie Sanders has started with nothing, with no name recognition, with nothing but derision from the mainstream press. And he still got this tidal wave. Nope, 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 nope. Never had a chance. All the states he won were too white or too weird. Now, Donald Trump supporters are not too white, but Bernie Sanders supporters are too white. That's what you're hearing in the establishment press. Look, we, we do things a little differently here. Yes, we get animated about the news. Yes, we're not the robots on TV. I actually care about the news. Guilty. Guilty, I care, right? So, uh, Wolf Blitzer, this is the news, and the lady has a Heil Hitler sign. Now we move on. Whoa, 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 whoa. Isn't that interesting? Don't you want to show some sort of emotion? Or don't you care about your job at all? But much more importantly than that, yeah, we do things differently. We actually bring you facts. So whereas Anderson Cooper the other night on CNN said, Oh, well, Hillary Clinton's more electable. But wait a minute. I've got a dozen polls saying the exact opposite. Where's your facts? They don't care about the facts. They love the establishment. They are the establishment. So you need a voice. (laughs) 
context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. I can't stand Bernie Sanders. <laughs> Not that I don't like anybody, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm no fan of Bernie Sanders, and I'm I'm even more irritated as I hear more people talk about him as though he is not a racist. In fact, I hear people they will talk as though it's Hillary Clinton could be a racist. Donald Trump is definitely racist, but Bernie Sanders is the greatest white man in the history of ever since John Brown, and uh, that's more than enough right there <laughs> for me to be uh, suspicious. Anywho. Compensatory call-in. Uh, if folks are looking to participate, the number to dial is 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Number again, 641 715 Three six four zero. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Fundraising for 2016. Invest if you think the program is constructive. The blog racism-notes.blogspot.com. Racism-notes.blogspot.com. Uh, when you hit the blog, you'll see the PayPal button in the top right corner. Uh, if you are not into PayPal, drop me an email and we will get you a physical mailing address. Uh, big thanks to all the folks who have supported, invested us uh, nearly seven years. I hope it has been a constructive investment of your time and energy. Quickly, uh, before we get to some of the folks who dialed in, uh, two things. Number one, Dr. Welsing, they had the memorial service today. I posted some of the links so folks could check it out uh, for the live stream. Uh, I'm sure it'll be available uh, archived if you missed it. I'm sure people will have it posted to YouTube and all that. So if you uh, were not able to check it out live, uh, it will be available if we were fortunate to have any listeners uh, who were present. Uh, for the services uh, earlier today. If you want to give us an update on uh, what you saw, any takeaways that you have from the event, would be great to hear as well. Again, her birthday, Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, uh, her 81st birthday was yesterday, uh, so certainly uh, continuing to pay our respects for that as well. Uh, one person they did ask, uh, just in that spirit, if there was uh, an anecdote or a remembrance uh, that I had personally uh, over the years from talking to Dr. Welsing. And uh, certainly there are, are many, but uh, just in line with some of the audio clips that we heard at the beginning uh, of the broadcast uh, back in 2013, I think that was might have been the first time that she kind of shared her thoughts on uh, legalization of marijuana as it relates to racism and black people. And many of our listeners uh, disagree vehemently uh, with Dr. Welsing's uh, position on that, which is fine. We don't, you know, nobody has 100 percent agreement, uh, but many folks vehemently disagreed. And even I talked to some of our listeners and investors uh, off the air and they were like, you know, 
Dr. Welsing has never uh, even tried any cannabis, I suspect. So how does she know whether or not uh, it's, you know, effective in helping victims of racism and, and dealing with everything that's coming at us, uh, all the terrorism under this system? And uh, I called Dr. Welsing a few weeks after she was on the program. This is 2013, summer of 2013. The summer, this is after the trial, the Trayvon Martin murder trial, in fact, just for added context. So I called her and I told her, I was like, man, when you uh, gave your thoughts on that, you know, lots of uh, listeners, they were not pleased. They were not in agreement. We're like, uh, you know, you've you've never even tried any marijuana. You don't know what you're talking about, Dr. Welsing. And she laughed and laughed and laughed. And after she uh, stopped giggling, she said, and I hope I got this on the, the live program. I really made an effort over the years from the many times that I was fortunate to be able to talk to her off the air to any, you know, any great anecdotes that she had or anything that I thought would be constructive to get that uh, on our live program. But I asked her after she stopped giggling, she said, uh, back when I was in medical school, third generation physician. She said we were doing our residency and we were with the physician. He was taking us around to meet his patients and we would get the case history. We'd have the file in front of us. You could read, you know, any of the notes, what's in the patient's chart. Uh, the physician would tell you a few things about the patient and then you'd have the opportunity to ask questions. So uh, it was a black male patient and they had, you know, heard what the physician had to say. They had the chart. Uh, the physician says, you know, students, do you all have any questions? And Dr. Welsing says, well, she wasn't a doctor at the time, but she says, uh, I raised my hand. I said, uh, how long have you been using marijuana? And he said, uh, hmm, off and on for about three years or so. And I said, okay. They went down the line. Other people asked their questions, and all over, they move along. The doctor, he comes up to Dr. Welsing, and he says, wow, how did you know uh, that he was using uh, marijuana? Like, I didn't have that in my charts. I didn't know that at all. How did you know that? And uh, she blew on her fingernails was like, uh, you know who you're talking to? <laughs> and, uh, I just, she didn't say that, but I, I just thought it was another illustration of, uh, of her brilliance. But she said, uh, and she said this, this was years ago. This is way back when. So she said her response then is pretty similar to what she told me. She said, I probably would have a very difficult time, uh, like codifying if I had to like write out specifically what it is that I'm looking for, what it is that I'm uh, ascertaining when I can look at somebody and tell that they have been using cannabis uh, for a period of time. Uh, I, I would have a difficult time explaining it to you, uh, but I know it when I see it. Uh, and she said that I've seen this enough uh, in my patients over the years uh, doing psychiatry. And uh, she just added emphatically, as a black person that grew up in Chicago, I have spent my share of time around black people. Uh, also living in Washington, D.C., she added that for emphasis uh, with a giggle for the folks uh, who said that, you know, Dr. Welsing doesn't know what she's talking about. How did she come to uh, this conclusion? But that is definitely one fond memory uh, I can share. I'd probably have to uh, jot them down to uh, give a few more, but in the spirit of some of the news clips that we heard. With that, um, there was one more item I was going to get in quickly. The item, I think, yesterday for folks who've been following, another Chicago native, uh, Leonita McClain, the book club, uh, A Foot in Each World. At the end of the program, I think it was state stated in some manner that uh, black people, non-white people, we do not grasp uh, the depths of vileness in terms of what whites are willing to do to maintain domination over non-white people. 
and the question was raised, is that accurate or not? And I, I, take the, I took the stance yesterday, and I take it emphatically. Absolutely, we do not understand at all what whites are willing to do uh, and how that translates to white people that we're in front of individually and white people collectively. And given 24 hours to think about it, I was reminded of New Orleans. That was the first clip uh, that we started with. Uh, this week, and I was reminded of all the work that we spent last year, the 10-year anniversary of Katrina, two incidents that stick out in my mind, and I thought about them and thought about them and thought about them, and I'd been a while since I had pondered on them. They came back to me. Malik Rahim, former Black Panther Party member, he did all that great work, founded Common Core uh, down in uh, common ground, excuse me, down in New Orleans to help people rebuild their homes and did all this, you know, fantastic work, uh, lifetime really of working against racism, white supremacy. He said that in the days after Katrina hit, he said he was in his house. A black person came to his house and told him that white people with guns were out in the street shooting people. And he said he didn't believe him. He said he proceeded to go outside he ran into said armed white people and they almost killed him. The only thing that saved him was a white woman came outside who knew him, one of his neighbors, and said, hey, that's Malik Rahim. He lives uh, right here. What are you all doing? And they let him go and warned him not to come back out or they would kill him. That was one. Darnell Harrington, a black male. He was shot. If you saw when the levees broke, he's in the documentary. You have to catch the extra footage. There's a scene in that extra footage where he says he was walking with another black male. They were going down the street there in uh, West Bank. And a black male came up and said, hey, they're armed white people running around and they're shooting black people. Be careful. And he said that they didn't pay it any mind. They didn't, you know, take it seriously. They just kept walking. And lo and behold, they run into armed white man. He starts shooting. He shoots Donnell Harrington and almost kills the black person that he's walking with. And I was struck by the profoundity of that to have two black people who both to their own testimony acknowledged that they were warned that white people were shooting black people and they didn't believe it. Just another, and I mean, there are tons. There are more of these than I have time. We could do eight, we could do eight consecutive three-hour programs, and I would not have time to give you all the anecdotes uh, that, for me, just really solidify we do not, we do not, we do not grasp the depths that whites are willing to go to to maintain this system frequently, and it is unfortunate, but frequently even black people who study racism, white supremacy frequently and are a little bit less confused, you can add Gusty Renegade's name to that list. With that, we will get to the phone lines. If you could take five minutes to share, that would be great. That would allow, make sure everybody gets an opportunity to participate. Uh, try to be mindful uh, to let people know when, you know, you've done about five minutes so we can get to other callers. If we have an opportunity for you to get in additional comments, great. Uh, if not, that will just encourage folks to not delay. Go ahead and get your hand up promptly uh, so that you're not waiting until we get ready to transition to workplace racism. Uh, also, uh, if we could not do metaphors uh, the week before, we did a really great job uh, of not using metaphors, just being explicit uh, with what it is that we want to say. Uh, we are going to do a program to hopefully clarify uh, the problems uh, that I see uh, when people uh, rely heavily on metaphors to explain or articulate their thoughts on racism, counter-racism, uh, just a lot of times it's not clear the things that are used uh, in comparison, they are not equivalent. Uh, a lot of times it's relying on emotion uh, to get people uh, invested in what's being said as opposed to critically evaluating. Does this make sense? Uh, is what's being presented, is it even logical? Is this even accurate as opposed to just 
uh, being uh, consumed with the metaphor and, and whatever emotional response the, uh, the metaphor is supposed to elicit. So if we could, please make every effort to not use metaphors. Uh, that's something I try to catch myself on as well. Uh, so I'm challenging myself to make sure that I, I point that out uh, when our listeners uh, revert to using uh, metaphors to explain uh, what it is that they want to say. Uh, with that, if you could watch the background noise, I would appreciate it. And all the folks who dialed in uh, with a hand up uh, should be with us. Uh, feel free to comment. Hello, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hello, greetings, everyone. This is Paul. Um, I was very surprised, Gus, that you were not feeling the burn, quote-unquote. Uh, I, I was surprised that you're not a Bernie Sanders supporter. Uh, after all, it's been capitalized on heat march with uh, Dr. King. Uh, I'm very surprised by that. Mm, mm. Uh, that, you, that you do not, that Gus does not have his pom-poms in his pocket, just waiting for the chance to, to uh, celebrate this... Uh, this, this individual that's very really surprising to me anyway uh just just a just a quick um thing about the uh indian clip that you guys played uh at the beginning uh where where it's a tribal reservation and things the lady got into it a little bit what i was going to say like on that second part but just the suicide like that's very distressing to know about the Indian community and um, Mississippi is still has it still has its uh, Indians. I've been to the Choctaw Indians Fair. That's the only time that I've I've been up there to a reservation, and it is very isolated. And you think you know that it's celebrated with you know they got tribal dress and all this kind of stuff, but they don't. They live like normal quote-unquote, you know, with hairstyles and really they model, they look like they model black people. I mean, you know, with the hair colors and the and the cuts and all that stuff, it's, it looks like black people, but that's very distressing that they don't have resources. And see, those people are very isolated because if you look at, and I thought, you know, where, where the lady was saying, you know, they don't have resources and that type of thing, I immediately thought of like a job application. Do you see where it says, you know, an Indian tribal government? So not only is it isolated, it it has its own, you know, its own type of government. And so a school system and that kind of thing. And so the the opportunities are not, you know, slim, but versus, you know, what what these kids are seeing on TV, you know. And these people don't have running water. I think that that's what that Canadian report said. And it's just very interesting how, you know, white people do the same thing all over the globe. It's a pattern. They isolate people, whether you call it a ghetto, a favela, uh, a reservation. They're going to isolate non-white people and run their tricks on them and see what things they'll accept and what things they won't accept. It's just all a big, just, it's, it's all a big, uh, 
it's just an experiment. It's a project. Exactly what it says. Project. Experiment. And that's that's all I wanted to say. Go, go ahead, next person. I do not have my pom-poms, even though that is a metaphor. Uh, but no, I am not uh, feeling the burn, as they say. Uh, any of the other folks who dialed in who have commentary? Have you heard? Yes, sir. Uh, good evening, Gus. Good evening, Pop, and all the rest of the callers. Um, how I want to be real quick, so I'm going to run through everything. So cut me off from that five, Gus. Um, the white kid and his mom, that clip was um, very good. Uh, the kid called the teacher a nigga, and he just apologizes. And his mother takes no responsibility for teaching him the word and probably using it herself around him. Um, then assaulting someone after calling him a nigga, decorating the dorm room with Confederate flags and Nazi memorabilia, calling him three-fifths, and it's not a hate crime. <laughs> you know, um, the white youth in this so-called post-racial America, I don't get it. Um, and um, let's legalize drugs for all these little white dope and junkies. Um, that's what I got from that clip. Um, now that it's not us, um, let's get them, you know. Um, now I know why Michael Irvin sold so many jerseys in the 90s, that number 88. Um, I always wondered why he was selling more jerseys than Emmitt Smith. Um, and um, I don't trust uh, the racist Bernie Sanders either. I mean, just the irony of a Jew running a campaign about giving stuff for free scares me. Um, on the train the other day, I saw a slew of um, Make America Great hats in person. And um, I just wanted to get into the wordplay, the wordsmithship, smithmanship that um, white Jews, the proficiency they have, um, be it the speaking, spoken word or written word. Um, Trump is a master of the written word, in my opinion, his books, you know, contracts, you know, his pledge, his tweets, his slogan. And uh, one of those many synonyms of white is great. And um, along with good, pure, fine, clean. So um, we're seeing Make America Great Again, and um, whites are seeing Make America White Again. You know, or we could say um, America is a definition for white people, so make white people great again. Um, and um, we're not catching on to it. I think they are. Um, and I don't know when America stopped being great. They rule everywhere, even space. Um, along the same lines of word proficiency, uh, one of the best ever wordsmiths popped back on the scene. Uh, she's an expert at the spoken word, and it doesn't resonate with blacks. It sounds stupid to us, but um, Sarah Palin, um, thus, you know, you need to drop the cowbells. You know, it's very important to keep Mrs. Palin's prior Area 8 activities in mind when you mention her. Um, but either way, I call her Sarah cowbells peeling um forget how much i missed her these last seven years she had a statement saying regarding the trump protesters um uh, what we don't have time for is all these petty punk ass little thuggery stuff that's been going on at these quote unquote with these quote unquote protesters who are doing nothing but wasting your time and i was cracking up because you can't put punk ass together like that unless you listen to rap you know, and um, a synonym for thug is nigger, Richard Sherman. And um, petty punk-ass little thuggery stuff to thesaurusize that, you know, small-time, soft, backsided, trivial, niggerish nonsense. That's what she's saying. 
And I think that um, she's um, pretty much saying that they're acting like a bunch of niggas. Um, also, when I was looking up the definition, another synonym for little is niggling. And I said, all I could think about was the alligator babies for some reason, a little niggling. Um, I, um, I saw these hats on the train. They were green. It was St. Patrick's Day. Um, and I call that St. Crackers Day. And uh, all the E's were four-leaf clovers on the hat, you know, make America great. All the E's were four-leaf clovers. And um, I was on 42nd Street. And um, I have a question here. Is after seeing all of these um, quote-unquote Irish women, after being in the um, winter all, some, uh, all winter, not getting no sunlight, looking at them with their little coochie cutters and poom-pooms and their green shirts walking around, I said, how is it that they were ever not considered white? I wonder how they were able to figure out the difference. Um, I don't know if anyone knows. And if I have 30 more seconds, I just wanted to add in if um, people could look up in Google Images, um, Russia, Aleppo. Aleppo was the largest city in Syria before and after. And look at the massive destruction that Russia imposed on that city. And it looks exactly like the damage done in Ramadi, Iraq, by Chris Cowell and the U.S. boys, total destruction. But then somehow, I don't know how I got there, if you could also um, Google image East New York, Brooklyn, 1980s, or South Bronx, 1980s, and compare, it looks exactly the same, the areas. I mean, no bombs dropped or nothing. I'll mute my line. Thank you. Uh, hello? Yes, sir, M1, we can hear you. Oh, hey. I'll be quick. Uh, that clip, the uh, young Turks, Jank Yuga being dismissive of the racist white female and putting it on, oh, this girl being a white supremacist isn't a problem, but PBS is the problem, you know as if a entity can be as if an entity can be racist, not a person. So even if she is, we're just gonna dismiss it. And he's done that quite a few times, which is one of the reasons why I can't take him, Casparian, Mankiewicz, the whole bunch of them. And the Prosecutors who who lost elections, Anita Alvarez and the other one, uh, John McGinty in Ohio. I know a lot of times we attack voting, and it's a just reason, but in this case, I will say if the Tamir Rice murder and this and this prosecutor giving karmic as well as Loman because a lot of people don't mention Frank Garmick. They just focus on Timothy Loman. As long as this was a way for black people to show some self respect, I, I support it. And same with Anita Alvarez. And as I pointed out before, while it took her 14 months to 
secure an indictment on white police officer Jason Van Dyke for killing Laquan McDonald. It only took her eight months to secure an indictment on black police officer Craig Taylor for killing John white John Rayner. And she is gone also. And I also want to point out, I normally don't do political labels. You know the argument, the Democrats, our friends, Republicans are, both of them are Democrats. Yeah. And they didn't do right, and they got voted out. So just let that be a lesson. What? Thank you. If there are other folks who dialed in who have a hand up, uh, your line should be open. Greetings. I uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Let me make sure. Uh, yes, uh, well, what I have to say is uh, not directly uh, to uh, some uh, acts of racism that happened this week, but uh, I would say the uh, what I'm going to uh, talk about is the uh, the results, process results that, that are, have been affecting uh, non-white black people, especially younger non-white black people, black males in particular, uh, which I deal with, as you know, as a football coach on the high school level. Uh, Just yesterday makes the third uh, young black male that I've coached that has died due to riding on dirt bikes uh, on uh, the uh, highways in and around down here in South Florida. Uh, and I'm thinking the the part that white supremacy racism plays into it is the idea of, com- of collectively non-white black people as non-white black people, we uh, don't have a large contingency of, of constructive constructive things that takes up our time uh, with ourselves personally and with one another. Therefore, but at the same time, especially in this part of the world, we definitely have access to a lot of of uh, materials uh, that uh, we perhaps misuse, abuse ourselves with and others. Uh, and in this case, uh, dirt bikes are not made to be on pavement. Uh, matter of fact, two of the young fellows, uh, it, it's, it's been less than a year that two of them were, were killed. This recent one uh, was a uh, young person that uh, is actually 23 years old I coached him back when he was in high school. He, he presently was an employee of the Baltimore Ravens. Uh, 
And as I mentioned before, my thoughts of it is that if at this present point in time in the atmosphere that we're in, uh, our time should be filled with uh, things that hold much more importance than riding on a dirt bike, uh, 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 celebrating, uh, uh, that sort of thing, and, and more of a list on on uh, better when we're in contact with one another, some doing something constructive. Those four things that Mr. Fuller uh, described in, in in the code book that we should be doing when we're in contact with one another, and also developing what we are attempting to do on this program, developing uh, speech when we come in contact with white people. Uh, and, and, and as you have said countless number of times, that's why you have the majority of the people come on the program, our white people, is for us to, to, to establish some sort of uh, precise counter-racist dialogue uh, with the very people that uh, are representative, representative of, of mistreating us on a daily basis. And I, I think with, with that, with that, it would lessen the possibility of us, quote unquote, getting bored and going about the means of uh, of picking up things to do, for the most part, is not constructive. That's where all the tattoos come from. Uh, 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 in, in, in some cases, uh, as I mentioned, started with the, the, the dirt bikes and that sort of thing, and and uh, and I, I, uh, I, on a more constructive level, I used. Uh, the death of this recent uh, young fellow to to uh, kind of like talk to some of the present uh, young people that I deal with as far as to uh, hey you know if you're going to ride on a dirt bike find some dirt to ride on uh, as far as they're concerned because they're, they're meant for terrain uh, terrain such as dirt and hills and whatnot that sort of thing. Uh, and that's what it's meant for as opposed to on the streets. Uh, so that, that's just where my mind is at. Uh, and uh, it's always uh, a sad state of affairs to where someone who is, in one case, uh, a 16-year-old, 17-year-old, and a 23-year-old, uh, that you know that uh, the deaths could were preventable. Uh, and that's basically all I have to say right now. Thank you. Well said. I just wanted to uh, add quickly uh, before I get to anybody else that we have not heard from yet. Uh, we had a caller uh, this week just in the with the same theme uh, in terms of we're already under a system of terrorism uh, and really being mindful about the things that we're doing uh, and not making sure that we're doing things that is going to uh, increase the likelihood uh, of something destructive. Uh, or life-threatening happening to us. Uh, we had a listener this, uh, well, I won't say this week, but within the last two weeks or so, uh, where some white thugs uh, robbed her. And that's a whole, it's a, a lot of details uh, to it, and just a lot of racism. Even once the uh, enforcement officials were called and they came in, she was the victim of a crime perpetrated by white thugs, and they were still practicing racism and trying to help the white criminals. Uh, but I said I wanted to make sure that I mentioned this because 
uh, I feel like it's it's very important to realize uh, when your environment changes. And I have concluded that just with everything that we're seeing right now, what's happening uh, with the presidential race, and you've already talked about Donald Trump, and people have just been commenting on what they've been seeing. I think the environment, white people, uh, they are much more likely. Uh, it seems I would even suggest that they're being encouraged uh, to intensify their acts of racism uh, up to and including direct violence uh, against non-white people, I would say especially black people. Uh, and I think it's important to have that in mind, to just be extremely vigilant uh, when we're out, when you're out in public, uh, to be mindful of your environment, whom is around you. Uh, Dr. Cambon, he's encouraged consistently. Uh, he advises against uh, going out late at night. Uh, if you got to do grocery shopping and things of that nature, do that early. Uh, try to avoid uh, having to be out real late, 11, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the morning, uh, out driving around or out doing things. Uh, it's just, it is an environment uh, that is more likely where non-constructive things can happen to you in a system of white supremacy, particularly if you are a black person. And I just add that in because uh, this victim in this case, she said that it was she was shopping late, which is not a crime. Uh, sometimes racists, they control our schedules or what have you. So sometimes that might be the only chance that you have to get out to handle uh, business that you need to take care of, even if that includes grocery shopping. That is not a crime. However, uh, just in this environment, uh, particularly I would say the way things are at this moment, I think increasifying uh, acts of terrorism, particularly targeting black people, uh, it just might be something we want to try to minimize uh, as much as possible. Uh, definitely just be vigilant, be mindful, be alert. Uh, people that are around you, particularly if you think they're intoxicated whites that are around you, really anybody, but just really be aware uh, of your surroundings when you're out doing things and what have you. It is a dangerous time. Uh, right now to the system of white supremacy. That's always the case, but I think it increasingly so is the case right now. And just the only addendum to this, uh, this person being victimized, an element of how this happened was helping white people. Uh, that was a part of the racist strategy uh, to get this person to not really be paying attention to everything that was happening to get them to help a white woman. So I will just take this opportunity to say again, do not help white people. I understand if you're on a job or something like that, you have to do what you have to do to survive under this system. But, I mean, man, just if you're out, you're not on a job or what have you, do not help white people. I will stop there. Uh, folks that we have not heard from uh, who have a hand up, if you have commentary, uh, feel free to participate. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Greetings to you, Gus. Uh, Thomas in New York. Uh, firefighter in Florida, uh, Paul for all the callers and listeners. Uh, this is Ross. Um, I missed a, quite a bit of the show because I was at an African Senate event and I'm actually on the way home right now in the call with my wife. But um, I've, I wanted to comment first on your discussion about, because um, when you were talking about black people not understanding the depths to which white people will sink to maintain the system of white supremacy. First, it made me think of, I think Michael Bradley, the guest Michael Bradley, gave us the greatest blueprint. If white people cannot dominate and control non-white people, they will destroy the entire planet to do so. I think he, he gave us the most succinct but profound understanding of the depth of, of to which they would sink. What you stated about the um, black males who were told 
um, by their neighbors that white people were shooting and they ignored that and ended up getting shot, sadly, uh, um, and essentially almost killed, really speaks to our psychosocial conditioning as a people to the point that, and it really speaks to, again, Dr. Welsing, um, when she talks about studying uh, what happened to the Jews in Germany, because the Jews did not believe that the Nazis, the Germans, the white German Nazis were stooped to the level that they ended up stooping to. And it's almost like um, if you, from black people who live in uh, low-income areas, if you ever hear that there's gang, gangs shooting around the corner or whatever the case may be, you, we immediately take heed to that because we understand the ramifications of, of, not, of not paying attention to that warning. Why is it that white people, when we hear the same thing about them, we are so conditioned to not believe it? And that has to do with us thinking that white people are not capable of doing what they're doing. White people are benevolent. Um, why would they be shooting? So our whole consciousness goes towards looking at them the opposite way to which they actually function. And that just really speaks to us being at a, a, a mental deficit um, when we talk about black people having a lack of knowledge and that lack of knowledge handicapping us, we are severely handicapped. If we can be in those sorts of scenarios where white people are literally killing us wholesale and we're not paying heed to that and putting ourselves in and our families in potentially life-threatening situations. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about was I recently read an article about uh, the, the killing of albinos in Africa and uh, the theft of their body parts for use in uh, magic rituals is really, really becoming a serious issue. It's been an issue, but it's intensifying on a level that hasn't been seen in a long time. And it really makes me think the reason that, uh, well, first of all, it takes me to uh, this episode you did on mummies, cannibals, and vampires, where uh, the guests there discussed the fact that white people were collecting black body parts um, for souvenirs as well as eating those body parts, partaking of, uh, of black substances in the form of black people's body parts um, from mummies. And with these albinos, the reason they're killing these albinos is because of their white skin, because white people, white supremacy is in domination. So the easiest people to abuse anti-blackness would be those white and black people who are albinos. Um, and my thing is there's more than enough white people in Africa for them to go and wholesale take body parts from them since that's what they're actually looking for. From what I believe is the whiteness of their skin, the whiteness of those body parts that's generating this fever pitch of uh, black people going to such extremes to kidnap and, 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 and terrorize other black people in the form of stealing their body parts. And it really, again, speaks to our mental illness, the fact that we can do these things and the, the sheer anti-blackness on such a high scale that for all these white invaders that are still on the continent, we're not killing them and taking their body parts as talismans. We're looking at other black people with no power, probably less power than than the darker people simply because they can't even function on a normal basis. Albinos have to stay in the dark so that they don't, uh, procure uh, skin cancer. A lot, a lot of them are blind or, or, or at a visual deficit. So they're even worse as far as their general survival than the average person of African descent on the continent. But yet we find it comfortable and fine to go chop their body parts off and maim and mutilate young children. And I find that to be just fascinating but hor horrible that we can do that to one another. And then the other thing I wanted to speak about was the one clip I did get to hear about, which was the legalization of all drugs, which was something that uh, you had brought up previously. I believe Dr. Walsh had also talked about that. Um, 
none of that is going to be to the benefit of black people. And I remember we've talked about not just you, Gus, but a couple of other uh, callers have talked about the use of the word discretion and the fact that police are given such broad discretion with the way that they apply the law. Uh, none of those laws, if, if drugs, all drugs, whether it was cocaine, heroin, marijuana, whatever it is, if those things were ever legalized, essentially what they'll do is use discretionary law to arrest black people and continue the, uh, the perpetuation of the prison industrial complex being filled with non-white people and, of course, use their discretionary application of the law to let white people get the help they need or get them into facilities. Now, I'm going to ask us if you got the article that I sent you a couple weeks ago. It was about um, a politician who facilitated opening up a location for, for basically white heroin addicts to go to in order to legally use needles and they would be in a protected environment where they could do their drugs undisturbed and unmolested. Did you, did you see that article? Yes, I did. Uh, actually, quite a few people have uh, noted report. I mean, it's, it's widespread, but yes, I saw that one and quite a few others. That seems to be a big, a big push uh, to have those type of facilities uh, for white people. When I saw that article, that's when I said they're going to try and legalize every drug here, no matter how destructive it is. And the, the clip you played tonight just really exemplifies that. And we as black people have to become more refined in our understanding of the multi-layered attack on us as black people in the system of white supremacy, utilizing drugs and, and the so-called legalization of drugs to fool us into thinking it's okay to continue that tradition when the only people... And I'll mute my line. Right on. Just quickly before we nab any of the other folks who have not spoken yet, um, this is something we were talking about years ago, uh, and it was for me. It was just an important lesson. That's the only reason that I'm mentioning this. Um, when processing uh, racism, white supremacy, I think particularly for some concepts more than others, it's very important uh, to think not just about what the impacts, what the results of this will be over the course of the next six months, what are the results of this going to be over the next 60 years, the next 600 years. It can be extremely important to be thinking in those terms with a much longer outlook uh, with regards to what the impact is going to be, because I think racists frequently, that's the way that they are planning uh, with how, what do we think the results from this, how will this benefit us 500 years later, how is this going to support the continued domination of non-white people worldwide? And when we were talking about legalization of cannabis years ago now, because this was back 2012, 2013, uh, it's in the archives, we were having these conversations, and I was saying then, uh, racist, it tends not to just be one thing. It's not just going to be uh, gay sex, or bisexual. it'll be lesbian, gay, transsexual, bisexual, and on and on and on and on and on. They'll just keep going. Uh, it will be the same thing with any, all drugs. This is the first time that I have started to see uh, in what they call, quote unquote, mainstream outlets, people saying we should legalize heroin. Matter of fact, we should legalize everything. Cocaine, heroin, uh, marijuana, uh, crystal meth, everything. We should just legalize everything. This is the first time that I've been starting to see that on a widespread mainstream basis, uh, white people taking that stance, which is what I thought was going to happen three, four years ago. Uh, just something that I thought is important uh, to process when we think about racism, white supremacy, not just in the immediate, but 
long term, as they say, can be very important in how we process things. Anyone that we have not heard from uh, have commentary? Can I be heard? You're a little low. If you could speak up, that would be helpful. Okay. Um, I just want to say that um, concerning that, what happened down in Louisiana, where the people were, you know, um, not taking it serious when um, they heard that what people were out there outside shooting. Um, I live in a town that when I first moved here, it used to be a pretty good black population, and it has become completely, almost completely gentrified. Um, we're only we're only like maybe like two per, two or three percent of the population. We have sundown suburbs here that I would not venture into, and um, I, I would I definitely would take that very serious. I live in the state of Kansas, where it's the number two state where people have the most guns. People walk around with the guns on their hip pockets out in public, and um, uh, it was a lady a few years ago telling me that she had to go to a meeting in this building and um she said um it was a big building and there was a lot of rooms and she was confused and she went to the wrong room she opened the wrong door and there was this group of white men sitting around the table and when they saw her they looked at her like they were very angry like they were in some kind of a secret meeting or something and she said it scared her so much it almost made her heart stop. And she quickly closed the door. And I told this guy that I knew about that. And he said, oh, she just always exaggerates. And I wouldn't believe nothing she says and all. And I said, you shouldn't say stuff like that. I said, I think we should always take seriously stuff that black people say about white people. Always. I mean, I know I said this because I live in a town that's just been gentrified so much that I don't even feel comfortable going out in public unless I absolutely have to. But it would be the same if I was living in the ghetto where I used to live. I would feel the same way because I know white people are coming to the ghettos and they're gentrifying the ghettos and they're running the black people out and everything. I also want to say when you played that clip by Mr. Neely Fuller when he said that um, there are a small percentage or, or there's a percentage of Young black, young white people here that are tired in this. I mean, does the percentage of young white people that are tired of this racism and they want to do something about it? I'm like, I don't know who these white people are that he's talking about because these young white people are just as bad or worse than the old white people. So I, I don't know where, where where Mr. Fuller is coming from on this. And um, you know, so I mean, if there's, if there's some part of the country or somewhere that he knows about. Well, these young white people are, you know, I like to know, but I really doubt it um, and stuff. And so that's all I want to say. Thank you. Right on, right on. Uh, other folks who dialed in that we have not heard from, if you had a hand up, uh, feel free, comment. Um, I, I have a couple of disjointed things. Uh, just as a personal anecdote, I've only ever known one albino, and he was a relentless predator. I mean, he, he just, they wound up killing him at a young adult age. He was just the most awful person I can remember in my whole childhood life. He was just wretched. Anyway, um, Dr. Welsing, yes, Dr. Welsing. Um, you know, I, I, I try to apply what I've been learning 
and other people around me. You know, if I mention it, other people start applying those things too. So even though elections are, you know, have proved to be like futile for black people, I think they kind of go a little bit fast. And uh, I think the first process is to secure who's counting the ballot. So, but you know, that took a couple of years. So what I've seen now, and this reminds me of that, is that the sheriff who needs to be replaced, there's a lot of uh, ridicule and satire that, that goes around about his incompetence. He's a joke. He's, look at what he did. He gave bicyclist tickets. Uh, look, he lost a, he lost a machine gun. His, his own truck got broken into. He couldn't find his own weapon if he had to. I mean, you're just seeing all of this ridicule going on and it's really targeted at him. And I would be, I think that that really, I would be fascinated to see how that works out in the election in November, but uh, it's ramping up to an extent to an extent I've never seen anything like this against the white guy before. He's like the joke of everything. So we'll see if that works in the elections. And, and I did I did learn that from Dr. Welsing. Because that's what had happened to the Jews. So that by the time the, the you know tragedy befell them, no one cared. No one cared. So let us hope that this is what happens to the chair. By the time he loses his position, no one will care. Um White people have always been the biggest drug dealers, especially in the United States. They've been the biggest drug dealers on the planet. If there's drugs in Iran, drugs in Afghanistan, drugs, 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 drugs. I happen to think that white people are supplying all of these drugs to these white people who they know have guns, and they would like to exercise a little more control and cause a little bit more chaos. And I just think that they're supplying drugs to one another. They've always supplied drugs for everyone else. I don't think it's these Mexican cartels. I think it's just regular white people doing what they do, providing heroin for everyone. Um, oh, and the one thing, and I heard of a more child mistreatment out of the school system. Um, one of the deacons said that uh, uh, he, there was an 11-year-old in the store, not this week, but last week, and he asked, why aren't you in school? And she says that they suspended her for three days because she was running in the hallway, and she bumped into a teacher. So they're finding any way they can to keep from teaching black children, whatever it takes. And then they say, oh, look, they don't know anything. But they have a, I'm, I'm finding out they have so many ways to keep children out of the classroom environment. Yeah, that's it. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Um, peace to all the callers and to the host and to the platform. Um, you know, dealing with racism and white supremacy simultaneously in all nine areas of people activity. Uh, in my observations, you know, I, in my observation, would say that, you know, racism and white supremacy as practiced by people who classify themselves as white, whether consciously or subconsciously, to me, is like a system of satanic supremacy. Um, just the things that they do, the intentions that they have, 
the overall outcome that they want to achieve, things like that. Uh, I definitely, in the area of religion, would equate that to satanic or satanism or devilish. And so, you know, the more and more I observe the system of racism, white supremacy, the more and more I hope and wish that uh, places like hell are actually real for for people like racist white supremacy and the system of racism white supremacy. So, you know, I say all of that to, you know, encourage people to, you know, exercise their black self-respect simultaneously in all nine areas of people's activities, just as we know that the system of racism and white supremacy acts in all nine areas of people's activities simultaneously. So, you know, the more I see the racist white supremacists open up the gates of hell for themselves and try to bring people along, you know, it kind of is bittersweet. You know, I'm not the most excited about it. and I'm not the most knowledgeable about the whole situation, but just taking in consideration the mythology or the the angle of thinking um, as far as having justice and justice for everybody and the concepts, I, I support it under a system of racism, white supremacy, places like hell for racist white supremacists. And, um, you know, the Donald Trump thing and this whole election thing that's going on, I think that black people or people from Africa, uh, whatever we want to call it, really have to recognize, you know, are you a part of this country and the system of the government or not? And I and I I'll be the first to say correctly that I think that for a while we always said that we were thought that we was against the government of the United States and things like that, but we are not we are not and have never been against the government of the United States. We are against the racist white supremacists within the government of the United States and who abuse the United the government of the United States. And I think that that is one of our biggest dilemmas as far as being black people trying to move forward um, is our dealings with the United States and the racist white supremacists thereof. So once we get correct what we're going to do as far as the United States and the racist white supremacists thereof, then we could possibly get better as far as if that's having our own nation state or reclaiming some land in Africa or whatever or here. I mean, I'm I'm open to all things to combat racism and white supremacy. So uh, I don't want to take up too much time. But that's what I had to say. And like I say, I wish all racist white supremacists to hell right now and from here on out. So excuse me if I offended anybody or if I got you excited, but I'm I'm sorry. All racist white supremacists can go to hell. Did uh, we miss anybody? Anybody who had a hand up that we have not heard from? (laughs) 
So we got all the people who had hands up. Uh, we have about 10 minutes before we get to workplace racism. So uh, if you think you have a comment, you should get your hand up right now. Uh, we're not doing the wait till the last uh, second before we get to transition and then, you know, somebody deciding that they have a comment. So if you have not shared and you think you had something you wanted to get in, uh, please get your hand up uh, right now. Um, if we had anybody who was at the ceremony uh, for Dr. Welsing earlier today, uh, if you have any uh, comments or observations that you'd like to share before we get to workplace racism, I'm sure that would definitely uh, be appreciated. I can speak for myself. I would appreciate it. I'm sure other listeners would as well. Um, with the, I guess I'd have to say young suspected racist, because I saw the video with the report where these child called the black teacher uh, a nigger uh, the video it looked like he might have been a non-white non-black person I'm not sure uh, they showed his mom as well I would have to ask some white people if they think that uh, these are white people uh, but I, I can I think it would be correct to say suspected racist put it that way the suspected racist in that incident one it reminded me of the incident in Arizona last year where uh, it was a white child. I saw the video on that one. White child, unless I'm in error, I think this would be someone who'd be classified as white, uh, called a black substitute teacher a nigger, and the, t uh, the substitute teacher uh, threw the, the child on the ground. Uh, it reminded me of that incident, and uh, I don't know. I know we do have educators, but I don't know if that's something that is discussed in the training. Uh, if you are going to be an instructor, uh, what to do, if a student calls you a nigger or uses some other racist insult uh, against you in the classroom, I don't know if they do training on that, but I know we do have educators. That certainly should be something that uh, people process. I would not encourage putting your hands on uh, the student just in the system of white supremacy. I could see white people um, making your career, really ending your career. That's what I would uh, expect, even though in both of these instances, uh, white people were not quick to go after these non-white instructors with punitive actions. I know in the Arizona incident, uh, the case had been going on for a while, and they were still, they said, investigating and what have you, which did, because they had video in this incident, the Arizona situation, which was a bit peculiar uh, to me because I'm accustomed to, for any reason, they go after black people uh, with a vengeance, uh, but they did not appear to do that in the Arizona situation. In this situation, they said this happened a month ago, and they're still uh, investigating with the clip that we heard uh, this week. So I don't know if we have uh, educators, if that's something that is discussed, if you all have a code uh, for what to do uh, in that sort of situation. But at least that's the second time that I've heard it in less than a six-month period. So I would encourage all of our folks who are working in the classroom, particularly if you work with young white children, uh, you should not be surprised. Uh, do not be uh, caught unaware. Uh, these are a little racist in training, so if they should do such a thing, already have your code, your procedures in terms of what you're going to say, what you're going to do, already have that formulated. So you can just follow your code and boop, don't have a moment of uh, second thought. Uh, any other commentary folks want to make sure they got in before we get to workplace racism? Oh, my goodness, Seattle caller. That is always wacky to see people uh, dialing in from where I am. Any other folks who had commentary they wanted to uh, get in before we transition to workplace racism? Uh, yes, I wanted to share an event that happened when I was uh, going out to eat with a non-white female, black female. 
me and her were out to eat at a respected racist white supremacist establishment called Outback. And um, and basically, I kind of noticed the demeanor of the white race, uh, waitress was kind of off a little bit, like suspecting her racism. And by the time we finished eating at the meal, the meal at this place, uh, we found a strand of um, Caucasian hair in a plate, uh, actually the black female's plate. And the the look on her face as she saw the Caucasian hair on her plate was was very, you know, disgust, disgusted. And, you know, we, we had to deal with that act of race. I, I suspect it was an act of racism is what I'm trying to say because of the demeanor of the white race, great waitress. I think that she deliberately put her hair or let her hair fall in uh, the black female's uh, dish or whatever, her food, and to upset her and to cause her mood to decline and to ruin her eating out experience in America uh, at a alleged, um, you know, equal establishment. So I kind of found this significant, like the lynch picture at, you know, Joe's Crab Shack last week, you know, that the racist white supremacists and the racist suspects thereof are tacky, trashy, and terroristic, you know, in various forms in several different ways at the same place. So I wanted to share that story. Yeah. You never thought about what they might have did to your food? I mean, I did think about that, but, you know, I just had, at that point, I was so far into it, I could only just eat, you know. Uh, we had one other person that dialed in. I wanted to make sure we got to them. Just, uh, I try to remind people on a regular basis, uh, try to minimize, uh, at minimum, minimize if you can, if you can totally uh, eliminate uh, eating out where you are asking racists to prepare, deliver food for you. Uh, they've done tons of studies, uh, probably cranking more out as we speak uh, about white people practicing racism in the food service industry. Um, widespread Joe's Joe's Crab Shack incident that was just last week. And it's, uh, these incidents are all the time. So I just try to encourage people. That's one way. And that's economics we talk about that on a regular basis as well uh you can save some money exercise some black self-respect uh really try to minimize that as as much as you possibly can uh the caller at 8225 did you have uh comments you wanted to get in before we transition to workplace racism uh yeah uh just making sure i uh sounded like you already had transitioned um just three stories i saw on the news <clears throat> one was the hulk hogan uh who ended up getting the $115 million from a gawker for, um, I guess they released his sex tape. But uh, it struck me that just he ended up getting double the money of the <laughs> the white uh, female who is um, uh, Aaron Andrews from ESPN. She ended up getting $55 million for uh, getting uh, surreptitiously uh, recorded. So it just seemed like... Uh, their favoritism among themselves. Um, so that's one story. Uh, the second story is the, um, it said, it was kind of like an outrage story about the KKK was trying to silence and harass through letters 
a Holocaust survivor, some old Jewish lady, uh, so-called Jews. And um, it just struck me is that it's like she had very little to do with the KKK <laughs> and then with her. But the people that they directly uh, affect and affected, the black people, it's kind of par for the course, apparently. <laughs> oh, excuse me, that's a, a metaphor. Uh, but it just seemed uh, odd to me that they would um, point this out as it was the biggest uh, affront that he would do this to a Nazi survivor. But, you know, that's not even their people that they were directing it towards black people. Um, anyway, and the third story was funny. Um, it was a story about uh, two white Zimbabweans, quote unquote. I don't even know if that that's not possible, but uh, they were uh, denied entry into the um, the UK uh, after um, leaving due to violence, I guess, from Zimbabwe when they got kicked out. But um, they're deported from the UK because uh, they can't speak English or were willing to learn the language, and that's where they're from historically. Uh, so it just, it seemed interesting to me, uh, and they didn't take the angle in the story, but just that they, they would say that they weren't, um, appropriate or welcome in the UK where their ancestors are from, but they should go back to Zimbabwe or they're welcome there, supposed to be there. And they, it, it was very interesting to me, but, uh, that's it. Thank you. I know uh, people waited till the last minute to dial in again. Uh, I'm just taking the first person. Uh, we might miss one caller before we get to workplace racism, but I do encourage folks to call in with their hand up earlier. Uh, the person that uh, victim uh, be our last comment before we get to workplace racism. Just waiting on workplace racism. Oh, grand, grand. Uh, let's see. Uh, Two nine six zero two nine six zero. Did you have comments you wanted to get in before we get to workplace racism? Uh, yes, this is uh, Princess. Hello, everybody. I'd just like to say um, I know uh, Steph and other people have emphasized not helping white people, and I definitely understand why. Those last Thursday evening. I had gotten robbed at the Walmart here at, um, off of Manhattan here in Louisiana by, by two white people, a male and a female, while I was shopping. And, um, all because I, uh, was trying to be of help to a white female in need. Um, and luckily, um, I was able to retrieve my purse after, um, turning into a drill sergeant and demanding this person give me my, uh, purse back, um, after a whole bunch of explicitness, but, um, just, uh, you know, I have a bad habit, too, of shopping late. Um, I'm a night person, so I tend to go out late at night and do all my little shopping runs and just, like, you know, 
if I might have stuff on my mind, I just like to be out late at night. But, um, and while I had to take my initial statement because I was pressing full charges, because at first they thought apparently they were going to just let this slide up under the rug. Oh, it's just some helpless white people. They need help. Um, uh, basically, I, I had indicated that I was going to um, press full, full charges, and the, the investigator was kind of taken aback. Um, but, um, you know, it's still in uh, process, but I do have the initial item slip, I guess, how they do it here in Jefferson Parish. Um, but I just haven't had time, as you know, all white people keep us busy on the plantation. So um, I'll be following up with them next week, uh, and I'll try and give you guys an update on it. But, yeah, don't, don't help white people. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Get that repeated often enough. Hopefully, uh, folks can change, adjust some of our thoughts, speech, and action because we have been trained to do just the opposite to uh, help white people any, all times. Uh, and that is something that I think we need to uh, work diligently uh, at correcting. Uh, we will transition to workplace racism. Uh, the number again 641 715 3640. The code 564. 943 pound press star six if you would like to participate always great to have people uh they were waiting for workplace racism that is great uh we had a person who wrote in uh about workplace racism as well their commentary uh it was a rough day on the plantation today and i know i'm not the only one uh we non-white people are constantly under attack in the workplace it's difficult at times to keep my composure when interacting with racists on the job. I haven't blown up at anyone yet, but I've come close to doing so. With regards to reacting to racist incidents in the most constructive manner, the mistake I've been making lately is not fighting racism for the full seven and a half hours that I'm on the clock. I seem to let my guard down in the afternoon, something that I will be paying close attention to going forward. Uh, and this person, they had some uh, strategies, some techniques for uh, trying to uh, remedy this problem uh, with taking some afternoon breaks uh, to just refocus, remain alert uh, to make sure that you are aware of what's happening as it uh, as the workday uh, comes to an end. And I suspect that might be an issue for some other people. If other folks, uh, if you have suggestions, uh, if you, too, are having that difficulty, feel free to share. If you have suggestions, that would be great as well. Uh, folks who would like to share for workplace racism, if you have not shared at all, uh, if this is your first time commenting, feel free to go first uh, if you have commentary on workplace racism. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, these aren't the most um, climactic um, workplace uh, racism, but it's racism nonetheless. But uh, first um, thing, I was uh, at work, uh, a white female uh, was speaking to me. She asked me, oh, wow, your teeth are so white. Um, do you bleach your teeth? And I'm like, no, I don't. You know, she's like, wow, they're really, really white. I'm thinking about bleaching my teeth. And, um, and I'm like, oh, okay, well, yeah, that's cool. And um, she said, um, wow, you sure you don't bleach your teeth? I'm like, no, I don't. 
And then she said, uh, maybe it's because you're, you know, you're dark skin or whatever. And I'm like, uh, yeah, maybe could be. Um, that was just one story. Um, and again, uh, they're constantly, everything is coming back to race all the time. Um, and then another, uh, I was talking with a uh, non-white, non-black um, person that uh, I work with. And then there was a white uh, white male that was walking down a hallway towards us. And then the uh, non-white, non-black um, person, co-worker, said to the uh, white person, because um, the white male had uh, cut off his hair pretty short, cut his hair pretty short. And um, he said, hey, where where did you did you just come from a um a Donald Trump rally? This with the this with the the non white non black person said to the white guy and the white guy was like, Ha ha yeah, of course I did and he said, No, no, of course not, I didn't and then uh, you know, I don't know what else he said after that, the white person. But then um <clears throat> uh the non white non black person said, Hey, did you see uh, the stuff on the news about Donald Trump? Uh, and, you know, the white guy was like, yeah, about the rallies or whatever. And he was like, yeah. And he was like, yeah, they beat up some people and, you know, they were hitting people and stuff. And uh, then a white per- the white guy, uh, white guy said, yeah, I, don't, I just don't understand why um, these people, that lady, I don't even know why she shows up. Why do the people, she shouldn't even been there. You know, why did she even go to the rally, you know? And it was just kind of like, okay, yeah, so she's supposed to be assaulted and, you know, violence is supposed to be, <clears throat> you know, inflicted upon her just because she goes to the rally, and of course she's not white. So that was another uh, incident of uh, racism. And then, um, lastly, I like to say that um, white people really like to. Let's say <clears throat> you have a um, a black person that seems to be displaying some sort of problems. Maybe they're uh, depressed, they're quiet, maybe they're showing up for uh, work late, or some some type of uh, problems or issues are being shown by a non-white person at work, and of course they want to uh, really, uh, really, uh, you know, punish that person, or they they show no type of uh, empathy uh, for that person at all. This person is just a, a horrible worker. Um, not not disciplined or anything else, but you you know you turn to you know if it's them a white person that's displaying these type of things, maybe they have some substance abuse problems. They're you know drinking alcohol, coming to work late, uh, depressed, just you know walking around moping, or, you know just walking around work, not really performing like they should. Then you know they always they're very concerned. Oh, maybe this person needs counseling. Uh, this person is just having issues. They have family problems. You know, they just show all these. You know, the same type of thing when we're they're dealing with the um, this so-called war on drugs and stuff. You know, they get the benefit of the doubt all the time. And uh, non-white people, especially black people, they're just you know lazy, good for nothing. You know, people. Um, but that's all I have for now. Thank you. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Uh, I'll just give you a snippet of uh, a meeting that I was able to overhear the other day. Um, I'll let others speak because uh, I know I wanted to update you guys on my workplace uh, situation that I called about a while back. But uh, the other day I had our loss prevention uh, 
manager who also set in on my um, issue that I had uh, earlier at the beginning of the year um, when I had put in my uh, complaint against my former store manager. Uh, he had came to visit the, visit the store because uh, he was meeting up with a employee that they were investigating and looking to terminate. So I guess he had made some threats uh, to uh, management and they wanted to meet him at another uh, store with my uh, store manager where I'm at now. And while I was, I was doing some training and stuff in the office, uh, they began to have a conversation, a very coded conversation uh, about, you know, their, um, the loss prevention uh, manager's time on the police force. And I had already suspected that he was a former um, police officer here in New Orleans, just by the way he presented himself. But basically, he was going on about saying how um, back in the day, uh, you know, it was the wild, wild west out here and how they used to dress, the uniforms and stuff like that. And um, he was like, yeah, he used to... Um, uh, be a police officer over here in Gretna and you know he, he made a, a comment basically saying that um, yeah the people over, over on the West Bank are are used to being roughed up you try and do something like uh, that what we do over in the West Bank um, you, you'll get written up I mean they'll write you up even if you wear your uniform incorrect they're not used to that type of treatment so I was just playing as if I, you know, they know I'm from Florida. So I was just pretending like I didn't know, you know, anything. I was just like, oh, wow, really? And he was like, yeah, they're, they're, um, you know, the people over here, they're, they're used to being roughed up and they'll be your friend the next day. And anybody who's uh, familiar with New Orleans, um, uh, you know, it's uh, heavily populated with non-white um, people, uh, in particular black people, and especially on the West Bank versus Metairie, which, which is what he was using as his comparison. And from what I understand, places like Slidell or Metairie is predominantly white areas um, for, for white people. So I just thought that was interesting. Hello, good night. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. We can hear you. All right. Um, I recently got, like, a new job. It's in the uh, electronics industry. So the place where I'm at, it's, um, it's two buildings. So you have an engineering building and a production building. And in the engineering building, I'm the only black person in that building. And the production building is filled with, like, non-whites, black, black people and, like, so-called Spanish people or Latino or whatever. And um, one of the engineers was looking for another engineer. And uh, he came to me and he was like, oh, I, I have to rescue this person from the dark side. And he takes out that, you know, that Skywalker, that, that sword thing? He whips out that sword and makes that noise. And I've also heard, like, other engineers um, 
made comments about like not wanting to go over to the, the production side of the building. So they say that he would send like another non-white person to interact with other non-white people. Um, there was an incident on my job where I went to HR to um, fill out some paperwork to get uh, like uh, insurance. And uh, I'm in the office with her, filling out the paperwork and stuff, and she basically starts talking to me about her sons and how well her sons are doing. And the reason why her sons are doing so well is because, you know, um, when they were growing up, they did a volunteer service. And she starts telling me that, you know, her son volunteered at a, at a, at a um, it's like a, like, what do you call it? No. Like some ambulance? I don't even know what it is. Some, some ambulance thing. Um, where I guess um, he was like, a, what did he do, like CPR and stuff, whatever. But he, 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 um, he, he uh, volunteered at a place like that, that, that's in my neighborhood. So um, she's saying to me that um, some 17-year-old young man got shot at, a, at, a, at, a, um, at some, like, at some after-school thing, and her son basically saved his life. And she's telling me how I need to get my son doing something so, he, so he's off the streets. And he's occupied. And she's talking and she's talking and she's, she's, she's basically schooling me about my child. And she says to me, your son is only one, right? And I said, exactly. And she's like, oh, you know, by the time, by time you look around, you know, he's going to be 10 years old. So you have to, you know, you have to start thinking about these things. And I'm there listening to her and I'm listening to her practice racism. Because I'm like, how are you going to just say these things to me, like, would you say this to me if I was, like, was a, if I was like a, a white person? So that happens. She says what she says, and I'm like, I was a little bit upset and, like, irritated by it, too. You know what I mean? She, she's practicing racism on me. I felt like I just couldn't, I, I couldn't do nothing. And um, she saw me a different day eating my breakfast, and she walks up to me. She's, she's talking to me about my insurance and stuff. And if I got, um, got the card and everything like that, and I'm like, yo, yeah, I got the card and everything. And um, she walks up and she's like, oh, yeah, um, I was talking to this, this person. This person that she's talking about is a non-white female, the, 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 um, the secretary. She's like, oh, I was talking to the, the, um, this, this, this non-white female. And I was telling, telling her I was talking, talking, talking to you about your son. And, I, and I, he's just one, one years old. And we were, we were both laughing. And again, I was like, this lady's still practicing racism. Because I'm like, why did she come to me telling me that she's talking to a non-white female about my son? Like, it, am I supposed to hear that and, and feel better because a non-white person find it funny? But, yeah, that's, that's my uh, spiel. Thank you. <laughs> that, that, those type of uh, comments... And even going all the way back to uh, the first caller, uh, the male caller, where he said, uh, <clears throat> the, I guess it was a white woman, she made some sort of comment about his teeth, and she kept saying, oh, you, you bleach your teeth, and um, that's why they're so white, you bleach your teeth, maybe it's because you're black. I'm of the opinion, the only reason that you can make comments like that, the only way that white people can make comments like that is if they understand racism, white supremacy. There's no way that you can make uh, a comment of that nature and say that you don't understand racism, white supremacy. That's why I say that is one of the greatest uh, lies uh, on the planet. 
uh, when they try to say that, well, white people, they just don't understand racism. They just, you know, they're ignorant about racism. They just don't know what it is. Uh, those type of comments reveal how much they know about racism, white supremacy, and how frequently they are thinking about racism, where they're saying, oh, I don't want to go to that, the dark side, uh, see if we can find some niggers to send to, to that part. But they are thinking about this all the time, as even I think Princess just said in her commentary, that they will just be a little bit more coded from time to time, depending on who's uh, in the area as to how they talk about or what they reveal about what they know about racism, white supremacy. Uh, other folks, if you all have comments, uh, suggestions, or if you have questions about what you've heard uh, thus far, feel free. Or if other folks have their uh, other incidents they would like to share, feel free as well. Thanks to all the folks who uh, have shared thus far also. I had a question for the, um, just for the female who just spoke. I wanted to know um, how did they find out about your son? Was that something you discussed on the job, or did you bring pictures to the job when you got the job? position and they were able to see let's say pictures of your family there no it was discussed when i had my uh i had my in uh, no it was after i got the job and i was thinking i was, I was filling out people with the taxes you know you have to put like either like zero or one or some nonsense like that and i wasn't sure about what number to put so i was like you know i have a child and such and such and she was like okay put like two or something like that but that's how they knew about my son i don't i don't show any pictures or anything like that. i have no pictures of my son or my family at work Wow, because that speaks volumes just to how much white people pay attention to every nuance and detail of our lives to the point where just filling out a tax form and asking a question makes them feel that they have the, uh, that carte blanche ability to just uh, analyze your family in a racist, white supremacist manner. So I think that's something we should all think about, even when we do things like that on the job, that even if we try to be codified and give as little information about ourselves as possible, just using those, those uh, what seem to be uh, basic, innocuous demographic forms that they give out are ways that they fish for information in an official capacity to further use it to abuse you down the road. Wow, that's fascinating. Thank you so much. I was also going to um, uh, say to the caller, it, or ask rather, do you live close to work? Yep, I live like... Uh probably like 15 minutes away from work. Uh, it, I mean, is it a lot of traffic to where or that will like hinder you from just being able to just go home uh, for lunch? Oh, my, my lunch. No, the lunch, my lunch break is only a half an hour. That's too short for me to go, go home for lunch. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Cause I was going to say, I know Mr. Fuller in the past had, um, when I would talk to him from time to time, he would always talk about, you know, um, if possible to, you know, not um, eat your lunch there. If you're able to go home, you should go home uh, to eat your lunch or, or you know, living uh, and working in close proximity of, you know, where you work at and stuff to make it easier. Because I find, like, uh, in in certain settings like that, white people are just waiting to try and get personable with uh, black people. And, you know, kind of like when you go on your 15-minute break to get something to drink or water cooler, stuff like that, they use those opportunities to try and, you know, uh, get into your personal business and stuff. So, 
the years, I, I just so happened to be lucky to where I, I literally live like five minutes away from a call center that I might have been working at and this and the other. So I just always go home and eat. Um, I, what I would do um, to the lady is, uh, and uh, next time that I, I bump into that lady, I would say, you know what? I took your advice. I decided to get my son into something. I let him join an African study group. Thanks for your advice. And see what she says. <laughs> and then for the guy with the um, teeth, because, man, for white people, I wish. Because <laughs> I would say in a joking way, man, you know, I always thought that white skin made white people's teeth look yellow more yellow. Don't just, you know, like in a joking way, and see how they respond to that. I uh, doubt she'll be making that comment to you again. You know, um, I I really, I try to refrain from, you know, going into that uh, that route because it's hard for me to, you know, go full, you know, full throttle. No, that's a metaphor, but go, uh, I, I can't, I don't have a moderate type of um, attitude when it comes to that, so I'll, I'll probably go a little too far with it. But that, that, that is a good, a good, that was pretty funny. Does anybody have like a code for workplace where uh, you, you live far enough that you can't like go home? Uh, going home is not an option for lunch, so you've codified how you deal with taking uh, lunch where you have to remain on the premises. Anybody have a code that has worked well for them in that? Yes, iPod headphones works perfectly. I'm, I'm listening to, I'm on a conference call, um, I'm listening to uh, a blog show, you know, I'm not, you know, right now I have to catch up on something. I always put something in my ears. And they don't, you know, they already know. They could be sitting right next to me, but they're not going to interact with me. I go to my car. I just go to my car for that half an hour and just chill out. If you have an office, you know, stay in your office, close the door if you can, or if you can just go for a walk with headphones, even though that doesn't work all the time, but it helps a lot. Because people do come find me in my office and, you know, bother me with all types of, you know, foolishness. But, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I say headphones is uh, a great way to kind of isolate yourself in a space where it's less likely for you to be disturbed. The other thing I tend to do, too, is um, on my lunch break, I actually listen to archive college episodes. And um, for me, just having that constant access to archives really, really keeps me on my council racist grind, mentally speaking, so that I never put uh, in the back of my mind the idea that I'm working with and, and are amongst for eight hours psychotic racist predators. So for me, like just listening to the cows on my lunch break just reinforces my codification on a 24-hour basis no matter where I am. I know uh, 404, uh, she's called in, investor, listened for years. Uh, she also is a big fan of, uh, if you're in an environment where it's warm enough, uh, going to your vehicle uh, and just do your lunch break there. That way you can maybe get some distance uh, while you're taking your break and do your meal, that sort of thing. She's recommended that uh, as well. 
uh, to kind of minimize conflict uh, or interruptions, disturbances, opportunities for racists to make any sort of tacky commentary uh, during your uh, supposed lunch break. Uh, other folks have uh, workplace racism. If you figured out something to minimize conflict with other non-white people or some strategies that are working well, that is good to know also. Um, I had a workplace racism incident, and uh, the interesting part is I told the previous a story previously about a uh, white female who d- did not uh, get the information that she wanted to hear, so she called back and tried to basically frame me for something that she couldn't successfully frame me for. And this is weird because it's kind of the same thing. Again, this kind of alludes to a pattern with uh, racist white supremacists. Um, yesterday, uh, there was a guy who called in uh, regarding uh, medical claims. I work in the medical industry, and essentially maybe three days prior, my coworker, who was another black male, spoke to him. I was helping him with some information regarding uh, facilitating a medical situation he was dealing with. He needed uh, further assistance, and I was helping him with that. So, uh, and he's been very lackadaisical, even though his medical situation was as such that he could potentially have a heart attack due to sleep apnea, but he's very lackadaisical, non-responsive when I was trying to get the information we need to get him the medical device that the doctor said was necessary to prevent this heart attack. So maybe three days ago, he called back and he called because he had a discrepancy with his deductible. The deductible was roughly about a grand and so far the tally ran up to $950. So he still has $50 left on his deductible. And just to explain what a deductible is, essentially when you have medical insurance, if you have a deductible, the insurance company will not start paying towards any of your medical claims until you have satisfied your deductible. Otherwise, all of those costs are basically out-of-pocket expenses for the policyholder until they meet their deductible. So he was upset with the fact that he felt he already met his thousand dollar deductible and he did basically said, uh, because once you meet the deductible, as far as the way his policy was set up, um, as long as you go to an in-network doctor or provider with, uh, with, and had covered services provided to you, they will be covered at 100% once you meet your deductible. So the other blackmail got the call. He complained and went off on a tangent with the guy. And the guy literally told him to sign into his online account. They went through per each individual claim together, and he had, had him add up and tally up all of his payments towards his deductible to show him, mathematically speaking, that he only hit $950 of the deductible. So he was agitated with the answer because he did not get what, get the answer he wanted, which was you hit your $1,000 deductible, so these subsequent claims would, would be covered in full. So he called back yesterday and he asked for me because I've been dealing with this long-term situation where he's been basically BSing around in regards to helping himself avoid a potential heart attack. Now, I don't care because whenever white people call to the job with medical illnesses, I, I literally just wish that they die right there on the phone, but I have to be nice to them. So I treat them as if I really care, but I don't. So um, anyway, he called in and he asked specifically to speak to me. He did that. The, uh, Thursday and Friday, even though the the other black male explained everything thoroughly with him and had him follow along mathematically that Wednesday. So um, I called him back because he kept asking for me, but he didn't specify it was about the the uh, the, du- the deductible situation. He just said, I need this person, you know, Ross to call me back. So I called him back. He never answered and I left some messages. So then finally he talked to another person on the team that I'm on and uh, said that he wants to talk to me, and he explained to her 
it's regarding the fact that he does not believe that uh, he believes he already satisfied his deductible. So again, he's trying to do to the other black male what that white woman did to me. Essentially, he didn't get the answer he wanted. So because I'm helping him with another situation, he's going to pile on this nonsense. So now I have to call him back on Monday, and I'm going to do the same thing, have him log into his account, tally up his deductible, and explain because when I looked at everything, it was identical. The conclusion was identical to the conclusion of the previous black male. But it just goes to show you the vindictive, psychotic nature of white people in the sense that they have to have their way at all costs, even if it's at the abuse of another human being or the killing of another human being. And again, this speaks to the fact that we don't always understand the levels white people will stoop to to practice white supremacy. And, th and that simple transaction or interaction, you can see that they are just the most twisted beings that have ever been created. I call them cancer in human form. Thank you, and I'll meet my line. I suspected that. I think the... Go ahead, I just briefly was going to say I suspect that a good bit of his uh, vindictiveness is him his efforts being thwarted uh, by black people on the phone line uh, just are adding uh, to the spiteful nature uh, of what he's doing. That was all I was going to add. I was going to go along the same lines and say um, I find that white people, when they do have a black person and that's their um, service representative um, in any capacity, they fail as though they have an empowerment over them, and they can go to a white person and get that black person to do what they want to do ultimately. And um, I think that it works for them a lot of times because of the system of racism, white supremacy. You know, a white person might complain about a black person and to a white person, and that white person rectifies the situation even if they're wrong. And um, I think that that's what you're seeing playing out at your job. I agree because I think it's something like a, it's a, it's literally a plantation mentality because if you look at the business structure, any business in this country, all of the businesses have a structure of a race, a, a slave plantation. And ultimately I find that you're absolutely right. Um, both Gus and Thomas, the re, what I, reason why, because I look at it, excuse me, I look at it in a way of, um, you have one white plantation owner, i.e. the customer or the client, telling the plantation owner who's running the plantation, which is the company they're calling, your nigger is not doing what I want you to do. So you need to get with that nigger, nigger get him straight at, or her straight and make sure that she comes back to me with the answer that, you know, my powerful white behind deserves to hear. And that's exactly the mentality. And this is my second experience with that where I'm, where I'm personally involved, but I hear about these kinds of things all the time on the job where I'm at now. And, um, just the, the way that they function is a collective. We are in control. We are in power. And by hook or by crook, sorry for using a metaphor, but um, that's the best way I can put it. But by any means necessary, I'll say, we will get what we want from these people. Um, and the only time that I find that white people will accept an answer that they find totally unacceptable is when it's conveyed by a white person. If it's not conveyed by a white person, they are completely unhappy. Um, and even if the person's a supervisor and they're a non-white person, as long as the person's non-white, they're going to give pushback. So I agree with you. In addition to that, I think that the, the person, the supervisor in that company or whatever can practice even more racism against the, you know, the black workers just saying, you know, they're incompetent or 
even though they know that that white person that they're dealing with is practicing racism, they'll just pretend like, oh, the black person is incompetent and can't get things done. So. Uh, the caller at uh, 6353, you should be with us also. I was just going to add I, exactly what you all just laid out. I think that's why it's very important, regardless of what your title is, if you are a quote-unquote supervisor or whatever level you have reached uh, in your particular field, uh, remembering the power of racism, white supremacy uh, still exists, and white people can come in at any time. Uh, and what they call overrule you and decide that we're not going to do things uh, in this way. And I think it's helpful. It's not, you know, something that I look at as as being um, disempowering on the job. I look at it as the exact opposite. Just if I'm aware, if I'm not lying to myself uh, as though I'm all powerful, regardless of what my title is or what have you, uh, just being honest that, hey, I know white people can replace me. They can fire me uh, at any time or come in here and decide that, hey, you've been, as I said, you have been overruled. We're going to do it this way. Sorry, you know, Jimmy or Ted or whoever it happens to be. They can do that at any time. I think just being clear about that, not lying to yourself about that. And then you can be honest with other people, the customers or whomever else you're talking to. Like if you if you feel like there has been an error, madam sir certainly uh my supervisor is such and such we can go in check with them and make sure that everything has been clear make sure there haven't been any errors uh just to be gleeful make sure they get their top-notch uh customer service particularly if you feel like it's an issue where you know it's a white person they're upset that a black person is is thwarting uh what it is that they're trying to get accomplished uh can i get one more thing in gus about this uh yes sir. one last thing yes sir okay the one thing i'll say is the blessing about this job is because it's uh medical situation and you're dealing with medical policies and with a deductible it's simple mathematics once you're going according to the policy even your supervisor has to go along with the policy because it's a legal document Mm -hmm. so as long as as a a um a a member services representative you're giving information that falls directly in line with the protocol set by that legal document you're covered so even if if they pull the call if the person's not satisfied i've seen supervisors take calls there where the, the member was acting up and once they go to that policy, the policy sets it. The white person is basically repeating what you as the black person said to them originally. And at that point, they're shut down. Mm-hmm. And that's the blessing about this job versus in other situations. You're absolutely right. They'll change the company rules right there on the spot. And then you look like the horrible person who didn't help them. Yeah. And the white person is like the, the sick Jesus. The white Jesus comes down and saves the white person's day. So you're absolutely right. Thank you so much for that. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, did, uh, oh, yes, the caller at uh, 6353, did you have commentary? Yes, uh, thank you, uh, Gus. Uh, Sonny. I uh, I'm just want my phone is about to, to go out, so I'm just going to say real quickly, uh, the person who spoke about the white female, and I have three pet peeves, and one of them are white females, and which I'll comment more on another time, the teeth, um, saying, I think that when we're in that situation, white people, but it's not for very long. So what I'd like to encourage, uh, the comment about the teeth and the one about Donald Trump, I think I wrote it down, um, something about... Um, he mentioned about Donald Trump as well. Those comments don't land a lot of times with me because after 
she said it once and you answered once, then she's talking to your back because you're gone and you have more important things to do. Go to your desk, get your work done, focus. But and t- giving that opportunity for them to go further into it is unwarranted. You don't even have the kind of time and um, um, uh, to waste with it. So usually when I'm in that situation, after I've commented and it seems to be going again and around the coming, I simply, they're talking, they're speaking to my back and they'd have to come to my desk to talk to me further. Uh, and I'm always polite. I'm the most polite person in the workplace. So it's not offensive. It's not rude. It's business. I'm, I'm going to let go of my phone's dying. Thank you. Great suggestion. I like that as well. Keep it business. Keep it and keep it moving. That way you can minimize the amount of words that have to be invested uh, in these little tacky uh, exchanges. Uh, the caller at 8910, did you have commentary as well? Yes, 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 I did. Your um, volume is a little low. If you could uh, speak up, that would be helpful. Okay, is that better? Yes, ma'am. Good. Yeah, so I'm still a new uh, listener uh, to the program. Just the second time I've called in. I wanted to make two comments. One, about uh, racial classifications I noticed at my workplace. And the second, about um, Dr. Francis Cresswell-Singh's memorial service, uh, which my husband and I attended, and I apologize I didn't talk about it earlier. we just traveling from it. So the first one about um, classifications, what I noticed in my workplace in the HR system, um, they have a default that every person, whether you like it or not, is automatically classified as not Hispanic unless you go in and click the button to say otherwise. They do not have a default um, selection for the other, I guess, racial classification categories as far as white, black, and so on. But I found that really interesting that the default setting is you are not Hispanic. There's no way for you to have it uncompleted. You can't have that box incomplete. You're either not Hispanic unless you go in and change that. So I thought that was interesting. I'm not sure why that is. I don't know if others uh, who've been thinking about this a lot longer than I have have any thoughts or comments about that. I I was going to say it seems to me like they're trying to psychologically uh, indoctrinate whoever the uh, non-Hispanic person is, if they're non-white, into the white party. So in other words, I guess you call them like buffers. It's almost like creating an automatic buffer. Um, That's what it sounds like to me if they're automatically selecting non-Hispanic. So they're automatically putting you in the category of either being um, a non-Hispanic white person or a non-Hispanic non-white person. So, so it just seems like a form of automatic codification, and it might be a psychological tool to make uh, those Hispanic people who ch- choose to identify with white, um, if, if it's an automatic thing, it makes it easier for them to just go along with whatever is being chosen for them rather than uh, going in and making a selection themselves. So in other words, it's letting the white supremacists make all the, the decisions, which is what they're used to doing anyway. And it's a form of training when, you, when you're set to an, um, an autopilot thing when it comes to racial classification. I think it's um, to separate in the Latinos along the lines of race, just like um, they do us, um, you know, just everything else before they came here. Um, and you have some with the white decline in population, 
it's going to be a lot of Latinos that's going to be reclassified as white while I check who's. Um, and I think that um, they're making their their um, their distinctions early. You know, they, they're going to um, pretty much, I don't want to say program, but get people to accept the fact that they're Hispanic, non-white. You know, it's, and now that pretty much makes you black. have to give that a bit more uh, a bit more thought I definitely uh, can see the logic and if you are a non-white person quote unquote uh, Hispanic and you have that sort of system whereby the default is that you are non-Hispanic you're going to just go along I would suspect a lot of people are just going to go along with that and and pick something other than Hispanic probably white Uh, that would be my uh, suspicion which is interesting in terms of how that plays out when they do Uh, their classifications and they show like the demographics for who works at this particular place of business uh, to say well how many people did you have work here and a lot of times now people want to show up say oh we're diverse you know we have a lot of uh, gay people that work here and you know we have this number of uh, Asian people and blah 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 and you know we're all about diversity uh, how that would impact what their demographics look like but uh, yeah I have to give that some more thought that's uh, that is intriguing right I'm thinking more long term like, um, let's just say 20, 30 years from now, now these Hispanic non, non-blacks will um, probably be allowed to live in white communities and mix in with the white people and create white babies or something closer to white baby than definitely if they mix with us. And that will be 30 years from now, the new classification of white because white is dying out. But for right now, they're just getting them used to it. Yeah. Hey, guys, Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was thinking maybe they're sort of building that a buffer sort of category from from the Hispanic folks. So it was what my thinking might might be. Yeah, because I was thinking how just you mentioned earlier, thinking 30, 40, 60 years in advance, they're already start starting the process now. So that just like Thomas said, 30 years from now, Hispanics are going to be the new white to become that buffer class. So they're do they're starting it now with the intention of you know a few few decades from now that becoming normal psychosocial conditioning for um, Hispanic people. Absolutely. Uh, I have a question for the lady. Um, can you so you can't de- um, decline to identify a race? Yes, you can. So I decided personally not to identify, but of course they already know. <laughs> you know, so when they have someone who do- doesn't answer, they know, oh, this person's not white because if you're white, you're probably going to identify. But I chose to just not identify. But I also wanted to get rid of the not Hispanic. I wanted to be completely silent, but you can't be. You absolutely have to be at least not Hispanic. I said, let me take it, take that out too. I'm not going to give them any information whatsoever, but everyone is automatically not Hispanic, and it's up to you to choose anything else. Like, if you are Hispanic, then you can toggle the little button and switch it to Hispanic. And you know what I thought about too? Even though they have these category, this category the way that you said they have it set up, um, it'll be interesting to see for those Hispanics who choose to go along with the white label, which, which I, I do suspect the majority of them will, um, what the office conversation will be like when white people tend to ask you, well, where you're from, because I know you're not a white person, or they get into a conversation, conversation with that kind of trajectory, what that will do psychologically to the person who has classified themselves as non-Hispanic, quote-unquote, and white, quote-unquote, because white people will verbally let you know what they really think of you, regardless of what any census demographic information might uh, protect, uh, have in their actual system on the job. So that is also an interesting thing to keep be on the lookout for as far as 
office politics and office conversation around race for people who have gone in that direction of saying, okay, well, I'm going to just join the white team for, as a path of least resistance entree into the system of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think those, those paperwork is a waste of time because it's, it's white people who do the classifying anyways, because no matter what you put down, black, white, whatever, it doesn't matter. When they see you, they decide what you are. So to me, that's a waste of time. rhetorical ethics always important to remember white people do the classifying with regards to racism white supremacy always important to keep that in mind uh did you want to give us uh, your your observations from uh the memorial today yes yes definitely and volume dropped a little bit your volume dropped a little bit okay sorry is that is that better yes ma'am good yeah so um i do have some observations and as i said i'm still sort of coming out of my confusion so i wasn't familiar with all the people who were at at the event my husband and i attended but i thought it was highly highly motivating um because again i i am new to really coming into a better consciousness about um the system of uh, white supremacy but um the folks who i really found just incredibly motivating for uh for all of us to continue trying to press and do this work and get others to come along. Um, I think it was James Small was the sort of um, person who led led the um, uh, proceedings. He was quite good. Um, the other folks who I thought were very interesting and highly motivating, of course, Lauren Cress uh, Love was there, and I did get a chance to hear uh, the archive of her um, uh, when she came on to the cows. So she was there, and she was, again, just like on the, on the cows, she was incredibly uh, powerful in the way she spoke and the way she encouraged everyone to get up off their asses and actually do something. And then we're not here to just memorialize or remember her and feel sad that she's gone, but to actually do something, uh, to use her work to, to uh, motivate us to uh, bring, bring uh, peace to the planet. Um, the other uh, folks that, I, that stand out, there's a professor of... Um, um, uh, I think ancient um, or African history from Howard. I can't recall his name. I thought he was incredibly moving. And there was the pastor from Union Temple Baptist Church. I can't recall his name. He also was quite amazing. He sort of um, ended the program. And also I thought it was wonderful that the AME Church there in D.C. hosted this event. And uh, that pastor, I think his name was maybe Lamar was his last name. He was also, it was just incredibly motivating. Um, and a couple of things that really moved me, actually, tears came to my eyes. They had young children doing African drumming and uh, doing African dance, and tears just came from my eyes. It was just so emotional to sort of come into this consciousness and be around these people to really continue to be motivated to do the work that needs needs to be done. Um, so I just thought it was um, a great way for people to just keep the, their um, uh, sort of their spirits up and to keep moving forward and to not just memorialize her, but to actually take action. So, so that's really what I, what I took from, from the event. So it was just, um, it was fabulous. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. Be not discouraged. I know Dr. Welsing would uh, echo those sentiments. Be not discouraged. Uh, use the uh, amazing amount of material that she left us to uh, improve our understanding of what racism white supremacy is how it works to solve this problem and exponentially increase our black self-respect uh once the links like i said i'm pretty sure 
uh, once you give it a few, little bit of time, uh, they will have footage uh, available from this event, if it's not already, but I'm pretty sure they'll have footage available if people um, didn't get to see it live uh, and would like to, you know, watch uh, the recording of uh, what transpired today. Uh, as soon as uh, links and what have you are available, I will uh, share those as well. Um, we will be here tomorrow, roughly 12 hours. Oh, they actually have DVDs. Uh, oh. um, um, yeah, they're selling DVDs. Uh, so if anyone wants them, it's through the uh, church where they had the event. They had an email address. So if you go to that church's website where the event was held, um, they had an email address there where you email them and you can order a DVD of the entire service. Outstanding. I uh, posted the Facebook links and what have you uh, for the event uh, beforehand, so I'll just check back and see if the email is there. If it is, uh, I will share again so people can just purchase the DVD, and that'll be great. Um, if other folks were in attendance and you would like to share, certainly we'll make time for that uh, moving forward on future programs. Uh, like tomorrow, we'll be here for the uh, Global Sunday Talk on Racism. Uh, we should have participation from uh, a lot of our listeners who are in different parts uh, of the world. Always, uh, I think, very constructive uh, to hear from victims of white supremacy uh, who are around the globe but experiencing the exact same system just to see differences, similarities uh, in what whites are doing uh, throughout the planet, uh, to hear their observations uh, on the presidential race uh, and some of the other things that have been happening uh, worldwide. But that'll be tomorrow uh, 12 noon Eastern, obviously much earlier to accommodate people that are in different time zones, but 12 noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, 9 a.m. Pacific. Uh, we'll be broadcasting tomorrow. Uh, looking forward. If you are uh, up early for your Sunday, feel free. Chime in. Uh, we'll be uh, doing our broadcast. Just 90 minutes. Shorter uh, program. So uh, tune in if you have comments or if you want to take advantage and ask questions. If you have things you'd like to uh, hear what people that are in different parts of the world hear what they have to say. Feel free. Chime in. We'll be uh, looking forward to doing it tomorrow uh, morning, depending on where you are in the world. With that, uh, that will wrap us up. Uh, thanks, everyone, for participating. I hope it was a constructive investment of your Saturday evening. Uh, again, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy, contrary to the push for legalization of everything. Uh, you do not want to be under the influence uh, and have Daniel Holtzclaw, Darren Wilson pull up behind you uh, and not be lucid, clear thinking, to be able to make the best possible decisions uh, to keep yourself safe uh, and anybody else that you might be responsible for. Uh, always buckle up if you're going to be uh, in a vehicle. Say that all the time. Let's try to do everything that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers. Do not help white people. Just one of the simple things that we should be trying to do. Uh, reconditioning, having correct thinking, correct thought, speech, action, and emotions. Uh, to permanently solve this problem. Let's do everything we can to make sure we are not helping whites to the best of our ability. With that, if you have any gripes, complaints, suggestions, problems, feel free to drop an email untiljustice at gmail.com untiljustice at gmail.com We will see you in about 12 hours. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy, we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time 
we are in contact with another black person. As Dr. Welsing would remind us, it is an exercise of black mental health to avoid name calling and squabbling with other black people. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cows signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned.